0: Superman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and
1: Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and hour man who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC, who's who?
0: Ultra Boy and Mr. Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Hitchcock and Arisia and Woody Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy?
1: Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC Who's Who. Hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe, a proud member of the Fire and Water family of podcasts. I'm one of your hosts, the Mobile Shag from FirestormFan.com. Along with me is my co-host, the esteemed Rob Kelly from AquamanShrine.net. How you doing, buddy? I can barely hear you, Shag. What's going on? <laughs> I am calling from a tin can with some string that we have strung literally between my house in Florida and New Jersey because the internet has decided to crash around my house for lots of stories, so I'm actually using Skype across my phone. So folks, we apologize for the call, call quality this time around, but it was either this or Nick's Who's Who for the week, and nobody wanted that. I
0: was I volunteered to do it all by myself, but for some reason, Shag didn't go for that.
1: There's no way in hell I'm going to let you cover Who's Who, let alone this particular issue of Who's Who without me.
0: <laughs> Why?
1: Whatever reason? Never mind. We'll get to it. Okay. So. <laughs> well, uh, we are covering today, by the way, Who's Who, Volume XXI. For you Roman Numerary Challenge folks, that's Volume 21. But before we jump into that, we'd like to give thanks to our sponsors. Um, folks, The the – <laughs> I keep trying to say fire and water. The Who's Who podcast is sponsored in part by in Stock Trades, your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 45% off. Free shipping for orders of $50 or more. So, Rob, what do you got this time?
0: Well, I ripped from the pages of Who's Who is the Spectre, of course, one of the big characters in the book. Uh, my choice for this week is Wrath of the Spectre, reprinting the great – Run of Spectre stories from Adventure Comics numbers four thirty one through four forty, written Woo! by yeah, written by the insane Michael Fleischer. I shouldn't say that he might sue me. And drawn by Gr- Jim apparo with help by Ernie Chua, Frank, and Frank Thorne. Frank Thorne, man, you can't beat it. These are great stories. Grim, nasty. The Spectre is just kicking ass left and right.
1: Uh, uh, this, this, is, this is the stuff where he turns a dude into a candle and lights him, no, right? He
0: turns, people, he turns a guy into a block of water and runs into a buzzsaw. You can't beat it. <laughs> this is awesome. Um, there, uh, there is no page count listed for this listing. It doesn't matter. They're all the stories. They're awesome. The normal uh, price is nineteen ninety nine. and 99 and price is $11.59, 42% off. See, they're just some of the best Spectre stories ever done, and Jim Aparo at the top of his game can't beat it.
1: Now, this is in color, too, right?
0: Oh Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, these are, these are, this is the color edition of this. They did do a black sweet. and white one, but this is the color
1: one. Very sweet. Well, also keeping in the theme of the episode, I am covering Pulp Fiction Library Mystery in Space trade paperback. I guess I should say Mystery in Space. It, uh, it collects 33 sci-fi comics, and it's going to include, folks, well, specifically from this issue, it's going to include uh, Space Ranger and Space Cappy. And then along with that, you also get Tommy Tomorrow, Captain Comet, Star Hawkins, Adam Strange, Ultra the Multi-Alien, The Atomic Knights. I mean, these are great. You know, basically, the stories range from 1946 to 1981. There are all these great sci-fi thrillers. It's going to be written by Ed Hamilton, Gardner Fox, Len Wein, Paul Levitz, and a whole bunch of other folks. Art. Check this out. On the art team, you're getting some Jack Kirby. You're getting some Frank Frazetta. You're getting some Joe Kubert, You're getting some Alex Toth. And then more? Really? I could stop talking there. Yeah, that's a crazy Um, list of guys. (laughs) Page count, 206 pages. This baby's in color, folks, and it regular goes for $19.95. You get it for $11.57, which is 42% off. $11.57 for $33 color stories by some amazing writers and artists. It is some awesome sci-fi stuff. You got to pick this up, folks. So again, head over to InStockTrades.com, your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 45% off with free shipping on orders at $50 or more. So this issue, uh, you know, just to give you a little background, you know, basically um, we're covering a whole 26-issue series of Who's Who right now. Ron, issue 21, as we mentioned. Uh, Inside the book, very briefly, you're going to get, basically, for the most part, a full-page entry for everybody. You get a large image in the foreground, full color. Background is a single color. It's called a SERP print. You're going to get a cool logo. Um, And in one of the images in the back, you're going to have a close-up of the person's face without their mask. That's kind of important as we go through it, because sometimes it becomes quite interesting. You're going to get their personal data, their height, their weight, all that jazz. And again, our goal as always, is to describe these in such a way that you don't have to have the issue in front of you. Um, failing that, we are going to put 10 to 15 of these up on our Tumblr. Now, Rob, what's that Tumblr address? Fire
0: and Water Exactly.
1: And if you're going to talk about this on the social medias, which a lot of you folks do, please use the hashtag FW Podcast. That way we can find your comments, we can all interact with each other, and have a blast. So, this particular issue, by the way, volume number 21 has a cover date of November 1986, and it actually hit the shelves. So set your way back, machine folks, or your DeLorean, for August 14th, 1986. August 14th, 1986 is where you need to be to get this copy off the shelves. And by the end of this, I'm going to leave it up to you to decide whether it's worth building that time machine or not. So, Rob, why don't you tell the folks at home a little about the cover?
0: Well, yay, Ernie Colon is back. Um, (laughs) uh, Again, I said before, Big fan of Mr. Cologne's work. I don't think he was doing his best work here on Who's Who, and just by the nature of Who's Who being what it is, I don't think he's an appropriate choice. Uh, On this particular cover, I don't know what is going on with the anatomy, because (laughs) Solomon Grundy, who is uh, uh, ipso facto the main character of the cover, uh, looks like he is smuggling pillows uh, in his shirt. I don't know what is going on He's going for a weird foreshortening thing, which I get, you know, and, like, I could never draw. So I appreciate when somebody tries it, but it just doesn't work. Um, I also kind of disagree with the idea that Solomon Grundy is the main character. It really probably should be the specter uh, of all of them. So that seems like an odd choice because to this point they really hadn't had the villain be – you know, have a villain be the main guy. So uh, it just seems like a weird weird thing. Mm,
1: Killer Frost had the case.
0: Right. But for the most part, though, it was a hero, you know, so it just seems strange that the one one of the rare times are letting it be a villain. And it's, you know, Solomon Grundy. I mean, yeah, he was on the cartoon, but that was 10 years ago at this point. So it just it's weird. So anyway, we've got the co- We've got the characters sort of interacting. They're mostly just standing around. There isn't a whole lot of interacting going on. Uh, the two speedies are hanging out together, which makes sense. Silent Night looks like he is just like, what the hell am I doing here? <laughs> um, the Savannah family is standing next to Snapper Carr. Uh, you've got Slipknot coming in, swinging in like a like a boss uh, on his rope. Uh, True that. Yeah, and then you've got all the other characters. But otherwise, there's really not a whole a whole all lot going on here. The, I guess the neatest thing is you've got Shrinking Violet sitting on the DC Bullet in the back left corner,
1: which is cute. Oh yeah. yeah. By the way, you, you didn't mention it is inked by Dick Giordano. It is
0: inked by Dick Giordano, yeah. It it's just again, I'm a big, big fan of Ernie Cologne's work. I always have been, but these who covers are not his best work and you know, to me it's just he's not the right guy for this assignment. But
1: Well, when Robert Greenberger described Cologne last time when he spoke to you about described Cologne as the speedy Mr. Cologne. Yeah. I gotta assume these are all sort of pinch hitting, getting it done quickly sort of things, because yeah, this is, this is not good work. And this is not, Ernie, as you said, Ernie isn't an excellent artist. This is not good. In yeah. fact, this cover it has always been, and now remains, my least favorite Who's Who cover of all the incarnations. Yeah. Right here. Uh, now I will say Silver Swan's pretty hot. I mean, she's, she's, woof. She's, she's had some surgery there, I think. Um, but, She's uh, she's smoking. Other than that, not only is uh, Solomon McGrunny smuggling pillows, the length of his torso is insane. Like he's he's it's like three times longer than it should be.
0: Yeah, like I said he's trying to do this foreshortening thing, which is really tricky to do. If you if you don't pull it off right it
1: just looks bizarre. But, I mean, the head, though, should be – but the head and the torso should be the same. For, anyway, so besides Solomon Grundy being the main character, you also get Spawn of Frankenstein and, Sh- and Silent Knight very much in the foreground. And those are just like, huh? I mean, I would say if if anyone's going to be the cover people, it, it should be – you know, Solomon Grundy's a good choice to be up, up there. But Sinestro should be up there. As you said, the Spectre should be up there. Maybe Speedy because of the Teen Titans. Um, I would say, you know, they do have Silver Scarab up there, which is a good choice because of Infinity Inc. Hammered Skyman would have been fine. Shrinking Violet would have been fine. Um, or maybe even Dr. Savannah. I don't know. But some of the other choices, I mean, just, again, Spawn of Frankenstein and Shining Knight and oh, no. Silver Swan and Stalker on the cover. What? Yeah. You know, maybe, maybe Ernie didn't understand the way these covers sat on the shelf. Like, maybe he thought the backside was more important. I don't know. But, you know, putting all of that aside. We we do know who should have been the single most important character on this cover, and that, of course, is Slipknot. I mean, we're just going without saying on that, I assume, right? Yes. I <laughs> thought I lost you. Um, all right. I, I, I hate this cover. That's all I have to say about it. Well, let's move on then. Do it. <laughs>
0: Uh, Uh, Yeah, on the inside letters page, not a whole lot to comment. Shaggy, you wanted
1: to mention a couple of things. Well, there's a cute letter where someone asks if the artist donates the artwork for this thing. (laughs) They have to explain, no, we we pay our artists, not just for this, but for everything they do, except for the Heroes for Hunger, which was a a fundraiser. And then uh, what else? There was one other thing, too. Someone, some sharp-eyed person caught the duplicate boy actually managed to squeeze into the covers of number 7 and number 10 under Heroes of Lalore and Duplicate Boy. Pretty smart that they caught that. And uh, it's kind of ironic, given Duplicate Boy's power, that he made it on two covers. And, of course, the, the last saddest thing about this is there is no uh, Brenda Pope involved with this issue, which, you know, may explain a lot of things.
0: Get ready for lots of errors.
1: Now, before we get rolling, I do want to admit one thing. Last e- episode, we spent a lot of time talking about the Golden Age of Sandman. A lot of time. And... I completely blanked and didn't even bother to mention Ryan Daly, our buddy Count Dracula, runs a golden age Sandman blog. So here I am rambling about Sandman forever. I don't even mention his blog. His blog is Sandman Slept Here. The, it's sandmanfan.blogspot.com. Well worth your time checking out. Then, a little later in the issue, we covered Rubber Duck, and I failed to mention Sean Corey's blog, which is a Captain Carrot's Burrow blog, which is uh, captainscarrotburrow.blogspot.com. So I felt horribly embarrassed. So this episode, as we go through every single entry, I am going to mention where you can find that entry on a blog or a podcast or whatever, and when I get to characters that don't have one, I'm going to make something up, and it's up to you at home to figure out whether I'm full of crap or whether that site or podcast really exists. Maybe it'll inspire somebody. That's actually my secret backdoor. That's my backdoor pilot right there, is that when little Russell Burbage hears that he should be doing a, a particular blog, he's going to go, I should be doing that blog. Somebody's going to go. Why isn't there a Spawn of Frankenstein podcast? You know, let's do it.
0: <laughs> All right. So first up in this issue is Shrinking Violet by Jaime Hernandez. Yeah. Uh, now I love this entry. I love the Phantom Girl entry. Shag, you were not a fan. Does this one work better for you than the other one did?
1: This one's infinitely better. Okay. Yeah, I, think I like it's, it. I, think I, it's I like gorgeous. it quite a bit. It's it's, uh, it's a little plain, but the art is great.
0: Yeah, I love her punching the guy and knocking his helmet off. I, I mean, to me, it's like this shows that, that if if the Hernandez brothers had wanted to do superhero comics, they could have done it really, really well. Uh, and I still say I think they would have done a really fun Legion book. Now, as we know, the Hernandez brothers never had any interest in doing superheroes other than this, I guess, little dabble here. Uh, but uh, it's it's it, I don't want to say it's a shame because obviously they had their life's work planned out for themselves and they don't want to take themselves away from that but i really love their legion entries
1: i think this is i I, if they had drawn a legion book i would probably would have bought it hmm it's interesting is that they they get the first page of the book here and i want to say phantom girl had the first page before did did she have the first no she had the second page or something i think she was the first she may have so it's interesting that they scored the first page all the way around uh, other comments I had is, you know, uh, they talk about how Shrinking Violet has gone through a lot of changes, and she, she actually looks a little bit butch here, and there's, there's a lot of layers, almost like an onion. You, know? you keep peeling it back. She looks a little butch here, and later on in the five-year-later era, she actually um, becomes a lesbian with lightning glass so you know maybe that's sort of intended and then roll into the fact that you know the hernandez brothers are well known for their characters of maggie and hopi from love and rockets which were a lesbian couple it just seems like all this was kind of either coincidental or it all came together um now i mentioned that the image is a little bit bland and it's not bad it's just there's just a lot of a lot of white open space and very little text and i think it's chock full of spoilers for the trade i'm reading right now i have this gorgeous hardcover Legion of Superheroes, The Cursed, and this is full of spoilers. I'm like, ah! <laughs> so, And I, I dig the logo. The logo looks yeah, great. Yeah, it's
0: nice. I like Under Powers of Weapons. It says, Shrinking Violet received extremely low grades in personal combat training.
1: <laughs> yes. Hey, not but everybody, then, not everybody tests ever, well. Exactly, exactly. But then she goes and becomes a real badass, and that's part of the reason you see her punching that dude is because recently she's become a real expert puncher. <laughs> Good for her. I think think that's the class you took. Puncher. Puncher. There you go. Uh, So, folks, if you want more information about uh, Shrinking Violet, be sure to visit the Legion blog that nobody is doing right now. Really? Uh, This this bothers me tremendously. Nobody is doing a Legion of Superheroes blog right now. That is insane. Somebody get on this now. That was not a request. It was a directive. (laughs) Wow. Okay. With that...
0: uh... (laughs) Let's move on. The Signal Man, uh, one of Batman's more pathetic villains. Uh, I mean, just take a look at that costume for the love of me. Oh, my cape, God. You know? Um, Please describe it for the audience. Yes, he's got a red tunic and red leggings, a uh, cowl, a yellow cape, yellow boots. He's got uh, green clovers and blue stars and all the other lucky charms on his cape. And then um, – <laughs> He's got a giant sort of sun-looking type thing on his chest. And then his underpants are striped as if they are like a police tape. So this is just a just a fashion nightmare all the way across. He's got an extraordinary amount of history. Um, he's been around a long time. His first appearance is Batman number 112. So yeah. that's like the 50s sometimes. So he's been around a long, been around a long time. The is by Ross Andrew and Rick Magyar. You can tell it's Ross Andrew because bodies are flying through the air in ways that they just don't. In any sort of <laughs> way, that was a Ross Andrew specialty. Um, yeah, I don't have a whole lot to say. I always thought this guy was just a total zero. I know in later years he's been used sort of more effectively, like the calculator
1: and stuff, but I don't know. Oh, That's yeah, t- I, I didn't even know that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, he's, like, he's like a complete joke. I mean, the gist of it is he uses you know signals as his gimmick. You know, he, he likes to, uh, uh, you know, it's bad, like buoys and, and signs and all. It's kind of his M.O., and he gets busted a whole bunch. And then at one point he actually disguises himself as a character called the Blue Bowman. Um, yes, using that's bows right. and green arrows. Which which might actually be more interesting than him as a signal man, I'm not sure. But uh, I love this bit here where he says essentially they say after a while he realized that sending clues to Batman about his crimes was stupid. <laughs> yeah. Really? You figured that one out on your own. I'm impressed. So now it is a it is nice I like the Ross Stanger piece. I mean, this guy could have really gotten some crappy artists and no one would have cared because it's already ridiculous costume. so given what Ross and andrew had to work with i think it looks pretty nice yeah, you know, Batman oh yeah is punching him he goes flying as you said through the air it looks good and in black and white or in the single color of the serpent his costume looks a lot better that's for sure yes it does so. yes yes it does uh and he it, the... he appeared
0: in the um jla jsa crossover 195 to 197 and he's actually pretty effective in there he was drawn by george perez so that helps but oh, okay. uh, he's less of a loser in that one. Like, there's one point where he takes Batman down and he <laughs> actually looks pretty cool. So, you know, we all have our moments.
1: You can, um, you, can, you can find out more about the Signalman over on Kyle Benning's Batman blog, by the way. <laughs> okay. Yes, uh, Thanks for giving it away.
0: Okay, yeah. Next up is The Silent Knight from uh, – he first appeared in Brave and the Bold number one. Back when before that was a team-up book or even a superhero wow. book. Art by Irv Novik, the great Irv Novik, and Bruce Patterson. I have not read a lot of Silent Night stories. I like his gimmick is that hence the name, he doesn't talk, lest his identity be given away, um, which is something I think no other superhero has ever worried about in the history of comics. Um his, his alter ego is Brian Kent, and it doesn't mention anything about that here, but I'm sure that at some some point down the line, some clever writer decided he's a predecessor to Clark Kent. I just know that they're related because comic writers can't avoid that.
1: Well, his enemy is uh, somebody Bane, you know, and there's a Sir Oswald in there too. So It's like, oh, somebody had to have tied all this. Oh, there's Lord. no way they didn't. Yeah, uh, we can live without that. I love that the forest is called the Forest Perilous. Yes. You know, and uh, he found he's, there's a weird bit. Where he just found this armor in the woods. That's all they they don't mention it again. I'm like, that's kind of peculiar that he just found this cool set of armor that no one. It's has a ever neat costume. It's
0: all red and white, and it's a very unusual color scheme. So it, it looks really cool. I think he's a really captivating. I, I do want to read more of his stories because it's like, I'm I, I find the whole backstory compelling.
1: Well, Irv Novick actually drew some of the, his adventures in, um, in Brave and the Bold, so that's kind of cool that they got him back for it. And, uh, yeah, I mean, in the background you see him talking to a king because eventually he got caught up in the Arthurian legends. They say he was involved with the Arthurian times and stuff too, which is pretty cool.
0: Yeah, this is neat. He's a neat guy, and I'm yeah. glad that they uh, – I mean, he really hadn't – he's been pretty dormant for a long time. Uh, by the time they got to Husu, so I was glad they dusted him off and brought him you know brought him back gave him gave him some space. I could see he'd be the kind of guy they would give half page to, but I like that he got all he got all page good for him,
1: yeah now he doesn't have any really, but we should mention he doesn't have powers he just you know he's a really good swordsman and, and all that sort of thing. he was a really good fighter, so yep. that sort of thing um, It's kind of funny I mean, th- by the way, this issue really is just chalk a block of you know depending on how you want to view it, it could either be the lamest issue of Husu ever as far as the the second third, eighth eight-tier characters that are in here, or the most interesting for obscure characters. So you you get to decide. By the way, if you want more on Silent Night, be sure to visit Ange's live journal uh, dedicated to Silent Night.
0: (laughs) I can't believe you decided. Wouldn't a Silent Night be a good thing for a podcast? Because it would just be silence?
1: (laughs) Well, Ange may have a podcast that goes with it. I'm not sure.
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, next up is our first half-page entry, Silver Deer, one of Firestorm's less fearsome villains, I would suggest. Uh, I, have, I have no idea. I have actually no idea who this is. The art is by Joe Brozowski and Rodan Rodriguez. So That's the Firestorm team. Um, she is, uh, she's rocking the fishnets. She's part of the mm-hmm. Black Canary Zatanna crowd. A look. Her alter ego is Chanka. And uh, she can magically change her appearance to another person or take on animal forms.
1: But then, first of all, she's Native American, so this gets bad. Then it says she can affect games of chance. And all I could think was like, is that a slam on, like, Indian casinos or something? What well, that? that's a way
0: to make some money, I guess.
1: Yeah, I guess so. So not only is she rocking the fishness, she's also rocking the, the, the shirt, which has the sort of whatever you call that, threading or whatever. So she's, like, really showing off the cleavage. She's, uh, she's a whole lot of, wow, Mm. very hot. And, uh, she, she was involved with Black Bison, as you'll find out in about another, I don't know, 10 months or so when we get to her issues of, of Firestorm in our normal coverage. And there's something to hear about, like, Jerry Conway is really hung up on Native American grandfathers passing on their powers to their, their descendants, because, you know, Black Bison got it from his great grandfather, she gets her powers from her grandfather. And it's a kind of a, it's a shtick for him. But there's a nice picture of her you know, animating this giant hawk of, or, or some sort of bird of prey about to attack Firestorm in the back, which is nice. So It is sort of a bland foreground picture, though. She's just walking at us, but she's so hot, I don't care. <laughs> By the way, if you want more on Silver Deer, um, there's a little site called Firestorm Fan Blog that you can look that up and uh, find out more about her.
0: Oh, that's cute. Firestorm has a blog. That's awesome.
1: I, well, I made that one up.
0: Okay. Next up, the other half page is Silver Ghost. From uh, first appeared in Freedom Fighters number one, drawn by Scott McCloud from Zot, one of my all-time favorite comics. Uh, So this was kind of unusual to get a guy, an indie guy like uh, Scott McCloud to do this listing. I don't know why he would be doing Silver Ghost, but he did. Um, This guy's costume...
1: Yes. It's his only time drawing on him, so it was definitely an odd. I mean, it's like you said before and in some of our previous episodes, it's probably just a, you know, I want to do something with the Freedom Fighters. That's probably how it happened. Yeah,
0: maybe so. Um, his costume is all white with these sort of goggles. It's very, very boring. And his whole history seems to be just about chasing after Firebrand, the first Firebrand. And um, there's a little thing in his history here, which is really funny, where he talks about when the war ended on Earth-X, Van Zandt, which is his real name, travel to Earth 1 in an undisclosed <sighs> manner. Now, for the longest time, traveling back and forth between Earth 1 and Earth of their exes was always considered a big deal, but the friggin' Silver Ghost can do it.
1: And of course, they had to lay it out in Who's Who.
0: Yeah. So obviously, now, getting, by the way, getting around to different Earths was not that big of a deal, if this Mort can do it. <laughs>
1: Mort. Uh, if you don't know who the original Firebrand is, actually the dude, not the girl. Yeah, the original so the Firebrand. Is his sister. Yeah. Right, some people may not know that. They might think she's the original one, and the, and the weird one in the 90s was the other one. Well, they should go back probably, to
0: Who's yeah. Who Volume like 7 or something and listen to those listings.
1: I would agree with that, yeah. It, he is really, Mort is a good word. He's got the huge goggles and the ridiculous silver-white costume, and it's, he's zapping, you know, uh, <coughs> Uncle Sam in the background. I mean, his, his powers are actually to transform objects and people into solid silver. Once they're transformed, um, they're completely under his control.
0: Which is an incredibly and, stupid waste of time. Just make, just make
1: crap into silver and sell it. Right. You're done. <laughs> well, it says here that he turned um, uh, Firebrand into silver, but at no point does it say he got turned back. So I'm like, was that the end of Rod? I don't think so. I don't know. So anyway, for more information, be sure to visit Russell Burbage's uh, Freedom Fighters Tumblr page. So he's got lots of stuff out there about them.
0: I, I admit I uh, appreciate your willingness to keep pushing that rock up the hill. Uh, next up is uh, next up is see you know what's going to happen.
1: Russell Burgess is going like I should totally have a, free, uh, a freedom fighter tumbler, and it's going to happen. Now. Maybe so.
0: Next up is Silver Scarab from Infinity Inc., drawn by Mike Macklin and Jerry Ordway. Um, Who are in this extraordinary extraordinary, which in this case they are switching duties normally it's Ordway penciling and Macklin inking here we've got Macklin penciling and Ordway inking Um, you know I have learned something looking at these who's, who's who listings I really liked Infinity Ink as a book I read it for the first I think two or three years but individually these characters just bore me to tears. Like, when they're by themselves, they just look ridiculous, but when they were together, I really liked them, so I don't know what it is. There must be something about Roy Thomas's writing as a team that made it work, but I'm looking at this guy here, and I'm like, this this is just, I don't know, he just seems lame to me. I don't get it. The art is gorgeous. Of course it is. Um, we see him right. We see him without the mask. We see him blasting um, Brainwave and the older Humanite, and then we see him flying with Fury and Hawkman, so it's it's a beautiful listing, but... Just, I don't know, I'm like, eh, I was like, really? Because kind of, in for a long while, Infinity, he was sort of the main character. He was kind of the, the main superhero, and I'm like, really? The book revolved around this guy?
1: But I guess it can't all be Northwind. What? <laughs> well, it's all because of Hawkman. Because Hawkman was the leader of the JSA for so long. They made Hawkman's son the leader of the, the Infinity, Inc., which made sense. Or at least the, the protagonist's main character, so that's where that came from, but... That scarab on his chest really looks like Ted Cord Blue Beetle Scarab. Yes, it does. So His powers, by the way, folks, were actually just a fly. He's got a silver armored suit. He really has no powers himself. The, the armor is actually made of the same armor as Hawkman's uh, belt, which in this is ninth metal, not nth metal, but ninth metal, and which allows him basically just to fly. So that's what he's able to do. Uh, and then it says... Um, I'm sorry, I apologize. He can also project blasts of solar energy from his gloves. Ooh, look at that. So, and uh, he can lift great weights. So I guess he can do a few other things. I, um, maybe this is a confession, maybe I've already said it. I've never actually read the early issues of Infinity, Inc. I've read a handful of issues, somewhat in the middle, like around Todd McFarland's era. I've never actually read the original issues of Infinity, Uh, Inc. Oh, like the
0: first 10 or 15 are really fun.
1: I'd I'd like to. I need to. So and sooner or later, I'll get around to it. Yeah,
0: they're good stuff. They're really good stuff.
1: And if you want more information on the Infinity Inc., check out the Tales of the JSA podcast with Scott Gardner and Michael Bailey.
0: And so now that one's made up. I know that one's made up. So <laughs> made up. Uh, next up is the Silver Swan, drawn by Bill Sienkiewicz, doing his normal superb Whoa. job. This is a Wonder Woman villain. She first appeared in Wonder Woman number what does that say in there? Two eighty eight. Um, she is your classic, you know, kind of very unattractive, put upon young lady who gets transformed into a supervillain, and she takes revenge because she's she's now beautiful. And but in the background here, you've got you've got this. First of all, you got a great pose. She's off to the left-hand side, and she's, got, she's striking a very modely pose, and the way Sienkiewicz draws her is very, very alluring. But then we see a little bit of her personal history. We see her getting made fun of by these two jerks, calling her ugly, and she's looking very ashamed. Then we see her fighting uh, Wonder Woman, and then we see her with, I think, Mars, flying around Mars. It's a beautiful list. And Sienkiewicz, every single one that Sienkiewicz did was great. Um, in my opinion, this one I think is even one of the better ones out of that group because it is it's just, it tells you everything you need to know about the character in just that little block.
1: Yep, no doubt about it. And th- this reminds me a lot of his um, work during his New Mutants era. You know, it really has that sort of look as as he drew in the new... Because some of this stuff doesn't look... You know, some of it's just off the wall. This looks like his, like his New Mutants work. And I just... I That's a favorite period of mine. Did you notice the Serpent's two colors? Yes.
0: Yeah, you got Mars in blue. And then some, like, some yep. of the uh, little lines there. But, uh, yeah, yep. I just think this is just really great.
1: And she's crazy sexy. She really is. I like her occupation. Ballerina. Yeah, you know? Well, that's, a that's a job. So... And uh, the part... Yeah, sure. The part of Ares uh, being played by Brian Blessed there, which is, looks nice. So, uh, Overall, it's very nice piece. I really like it for a Wonder Woman. And then the logo even looks badass because he did that too. Yeah, so. it's
0: great. It's great.
1: For more information on Silver Swan, check out Diablo Frank's Wonder Woman blog. Uh, it's the new Wonder Woman Diana Prince.
0: Next up is Sinestra by Gil Kane. I love Gil Kane. I've mentioned it before. I don't know what is going on with this listing. Uh, Sinestro's anatomy is going completely out of control. They've always drawn Sinestro with the giant head, but this looks—his head looks like a peanut, a big magenta peanut. And then <laughs> his fingers on his right hand are bending back in a way that is really disturbing. I, I just think—I think, yeah. I think this, this, this drawing just kind of got out of out of hand. No pun intended. Um, in the background, we see him facing off against Hal Jordan. Then we see him standing there, I guess presumably about to like about to blast the Guardians, and then we see the other Green Lanterns about to nab him. So it's – I mean it's it's a nice it, – overall it's a nice piece, but the anatomy is so wonky that it just I, – I can't <laughs> – I just can't – it gets up staring at that giant head.
1: I'm really glad you brought that up. I was afraid I was going to have to be the one to do it. I was afraid you would be like, "This is a great classic Gil Kane piece." Well, no, that's not. Terrible. Plus, his plus his his right leg is
0: weirdly foreshortened, and this just one just
1: no. <laughs> it's a myth. I, I do love, now. We're not going to go into a lot of detail on Sinestro. I mean, you guys all know Sinestro. Former Green Lantern gets his hands on a yellow ring. You know, at this point, you know the, the entry mainly the entry is just talking about the parallax entity all the way through. Really, um, okay, maybe not at all. I just made that up, but. His, as you mentioned, his head and his nose—by the way, his nose too—is sort of like frighteningly large, like huge, like a like a mole or something. But I do like how his occupation is professional villain, which means he's salaried. Yes. So uh, that's probably from his time with the Secret Society of Super villain. He get good benefits uh, with that stuff. Which isn't mentioned here under group affiliation, ironically.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's strange. Yeah, he was a member. That is weird.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. So, and for more at Sinestro, check out Chad Bokeman's, uh Green Lantern cast.
0: As far as I know, is this the, I think this is the only character in the book that was ever put into live action. Because I don't think they haven't done Speedy yet on Arrow, right? Yeah they have. They have they've done an actual I know. Well,
1: they, they Roy Roy Harper's on the show. Let's put it that way. Okay. I don't know if he's speedy or not. Actually okay. I think he he may be Arsenal. He may just jump straight to Arsenal. Okay. I don't know. All right, well maybe uh, whether there was that there was that uh, Slipknot, you know, a series in the 90s, and it was uh, syndicated.
0: Well, the the Variety uh, Hour. Yeah, I know what you're talking about, so I forgot Right, about right.
1: Hour, so. Sportsmaster may have. Sportsmaster and Sonar, maybe? Where? I don't know. What are you talking about? Live action? Well, Sportsmaster's appeared in a lot of stuff. Not in live
0: action, yep. no. I
1: don't think so. No. Um,
0: He's never appeared in live action. What are you okay, talking about? Okay, all right. All right, all right. Next up is Savannah by Kurt Schaffenberger, the classic Captain Marvel villain. Uh, I uh, <laughs> I love his pose. He's just like eh, heh, and and uh, you know, moving rubbing his hands back and forth under very Dr. Mr. Burns pose. Uh, his real name is Thaddeus Bodog Savannah. <laughs> Bodog Dog. and his first appearance is in Wiz Comics Number two, same as uh, Captain Marvel himself um, he 's got a lot of history, as you can see. they talk about all the various plots that he that he 's tried to pull on Captain Marvel, and it ends with um Uh, He says, since then, Savannah has struck many times at humanity in general, and Captain Marvel in particular. His greatest humiliation came from his early good inventions won in the Nobel Peace Prize in physics. He tried to regain his reputation by launching a satellite that would start World War III, but Captain Marvel reversed the wiring and it gave the world 12 hours of peace. Savannah, to his horror, was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. I think in that paragraph it just sums up all the craziness that was Captain Marvel Comics in the 50s. (laughs) You know, I'm just like – he rewired this thing, and it became – gave us world peace, but just 12 hour, Like, it's just – you know, it's like either you buy into this sort of craziness or you don't. Um, I kind of do, and I want to go back and try and find – read those. I guess they have archive editions of those because they just sound like a lot of fun.
1: Well, I uh, – you know how much I love the early adventures of Captain Marvel. Um, so I don't have a lot to say here. I will say that, you know, Schaffenberger did a good job with the art. Now he, he drew like the 70s adventures. Is that right? Yeah. Or, okay. And then you know, you've got – in the background, you've got a nice shot of him blasting Captain Marvel with his little rocket ship. And then you've got him in with Savannah Jr. and him freezing Cap Mary Marvel Jr. – I mean not Mary Marvel. And it does – you know, he has a power. It says he has um, what are they? The secret formula that lets Walking him walk through, through walls. walls. <laughs> what? All anyway, right. Well, anyway, I'll, I'll come back in a second after you do the next entry.
0: Okay. Yeah, next up is the Savannah family, which is deeply disturbing. Because there are four children, Beautia, Georgia, Magnificus, and Savannah Jr. And Savannah Jr. and Georgia look like him, with the weird buck teeth and the kind of ugly nose. And then his other two children are beautiful, like model types. Uh, so it, I, I don't think they ever explain why two
1: of them look. Well, the two kids came from the first wife. I guess so. Yeah, and. He raised them up, craziness like that. And then the other ones came from his second wife. Okay. So I think his second wife was probably butt ugly. Yeah. Or, or or he cloned himself and changed one to a Y chromosome and made babies. Maybe
0: so. Uh, I love the, the, again, we talk about the sort of inherent silliness of the Captain Marvel stories. This goes with the, the lead paragraph. Savannah has four children, Magnificus, Beautyus, Savannah Jr., and Georgia. All appear to have been raised on the planet Venus. Wait, what? <laughs> and then there's something very confusing. In first appearances, Beautya first appeared in Wiz Comics number three, and then it says in parentheses, actually number two. I don't know what that means. What does that mean? Is it number three or is it number two? I don't understand. I don't care. <laughs> Just sort of curious. I think that's the only time they've ever done that, where they're like, nah, eh, it's not really the first appearance. like, Okay.
1: Oh, uh, we done?
0: Well, I, the only part, even as a kid, I found this disturbing a little is because it's like the ugly children are the evil ones and the pretty children are the good ones. And that's like, you know, to me, that's like kind of sending a weird message to kids, yeah. you know, like, oh, ugly kid, people are evil. And the, the, you know, and the <laughs> beautiful ones are the bit. There's just a kind of like creeping superiority Aryan thing. And they even mention that because they talk about the Captain Nazi fell in love with Butia because she was like a perfect Aryan type tall and blonde. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there, there's just, there's a whole creepy element to this that I, I, I find upsetting. I hate
1: this page. Oh, for so, well, For more information on Savannah and his twisted family, be sure to visit Tom Zoller's uh, Pinterest page dedicated to the Lieutenant Marvels. Lots of good <laughs> info out there. I like that one. Uh, next up. <laughs> I figured you would.
0: Next up is Skataris, although here it's labeled the inner world of Skitaris. Uh This is unique in that, first of all, the map is great. It looks very classic old school adventure. It feels like um, this is like something you would have seen on the inside cover to like a John Carter of Mars novel. Um, it's drawn by uh, – who is it drawn by?
1: Actually, There is no, there is no indication whatsoever. whatsoever. I can't figure it out. Yeah. I don't know. But this uh, map. Kicks all the ass. Yeah, it looks it's really so cool. Good. It's, it's all this cool stuff. It's totally boss. It's and going it, on the Tumblr.
0: It's the only map, I think, of a DC place that lists all the different first appearances of all the different sections. It lists, ah. it lists nine different sections, and each section gets its own Warlord number 18, Warlord number 5, Warlord number 23, which is interesting. They went. And did all that research. Now, a couple episodes ago in the Fire and Water podcast, we had Professor Allen on for the first and only time, and he mentioned that like, in Warlord number 50, there was that kind of like Wikipedia page in the back that listed right. all the events of Warlord, and here, this is very specific, so I wonder if Mike Grell or whoever was the editor of Warlord didn't have a lot of this information at his fingertips, and maybe they, they kept this kind of an ongoing thing and so when it was time to do this listing they had all this information you know right because it's they didn't do it for any other version they didn't do it for the Batcave they didn't do it for you know any other location this is the only one they did it for so I have to wonder if like you know they were just like oh we have all this stuff here you go
1: yeah maybe so yeah because I mean dude this thing is so much fun I'm in love with those two pages absolutely like do you notice the Sea of Grell how cool is that yeah yeah (laughs) I mean it's got to be for Mike right yes Now, I'm not a fan of sword and sorcery stuff. Like, for the most part, I'm not a big fan at all. And the only time I kind of get into sword and sorcery usually is, like, if it's, like, modern fantasy, like, you know, Harry Potter or Dresden or something like that. But because I I need some sort of modern anchor to it. And so, like, an exception would be Terry Brooks wrote these series of books called The Magic Kingdom of Landover. And it was about this lawyer from Chicago, modern day, going to a magic kingdom. And I could get into those because I had his viewpoint. You know, I could, a modern-day guy's viewpoint. So thinking about that, I think maybe I would really dig Warlord, having a modern – because, you know, he's – you know, Travis Morgan's from modern day. Having that viewpoint might work. So I'm really tempted to go pick up some Warlord comics. this looks – this is so much fun. I'm in love with this drawing. Now, you've never it's seen – It's got dinosaurs. It's got giant bat people. Bat people. I love bat people. And I love centaurs that. and mutated lizard men. Mutated lizard men,
0: yeah. This is This is very fun oh. stuff. Now, you've never seen Game of Thrones, right? Correct. Okay. The opening credits to Game of Thrones is an animated uh, sequence where it goes over all the different sections of this world, and the cities come raising up out of the ground, and it just sort of shows you, like, hey, we're going to go to Winterfell, and then we're going to go to the Great Wall, and then we're going to go to the, the whatever, whatever, whatever. I could totally see if they did a Warlord series that that's what they would do with this map. They would uh-huh. just they would just okay. place you in that world of being like Desert of Doom. Dragon Sea, you know, Sea of Grell, Kalistan—it just has that. I can just hear that Game of Thrones music playing in the background because this, is a, this, this does look like a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, it really does. Yeah. Well, I wish we knew who did the art. So, yeah. but uh, you know, I, and we're currently looking at a little bit of teaser, looking at the uh, Atlas of the DC Universe for the Mayfair Role Playing Game, and they have this guitarist entry, and the map, while it is about equally as informative, it's it's nowhere near as cool. Cause that's more of like a graphic design map. This is a just awesome art. So. Yeah. For more information on Warlord, be sure to, be sure to check out uh, Professor Alan Middleton's YouTube channel, all dedicated to Warlord. <laughs> <laughs> I would watch a YouTube channel if it was about Shakira. Uh, all right. Next. Up, up next is Skeets from Booster Gold. First appearance, Booster Gold number one. Oh, wait. There's no Skeets page. That's a bunch of crap. Really? Skeets? Yeah. Deserves his yes. own page? Really? At least – at least, well, you know what should have happened. All right. Skeet should have had a half page, which – and then they bump somebody other another half page and then give Slipknot a full page. That's how that should have worked.
0: I, I would argue that you could have given Skull a half page. I don't think Skull here really requires uh, a whole page. This is basically just a, a group of bad guys, and we see yeah. three of them here in a uniform, and guess what? They've got Skulls on their chest, and they've got a skull in their logo they like to brand. Their first appearance in, was in Superman number 301. Uh, I never really could get into the I never really knew who these guys were. They just kind of looked like a bunch of guys with guns fighting Superman. yeah, it's going to be a short fight.
1: <laughs> I think somebody had a, had a mat on and wanted for wanting to make their own organized criminal team is what it is. Yeah. because these, these guys are basically um, were created to compete with the 100. You know and uh, you see in the background of the serpent, you get the atomic skull. He was kind of involved in all of this and with the formation of the group. And, uh, yeah, it, it doesn't grab me either. I mean, the, the costumes look kind of okay. You know, and, and if they had made, like, a bunch of appearances, like a Hydra or an AIM or something like that, we'd probably be singing their praises. But the fact that they didn't last, sort of, like, kind of like, meh, you know, I'm not interested.
0: So. Yeah, yeah, I was kind of meh on them as
1: well. Sorry, guys. Yep. But for more information, be sure to check out Jeff R. He runs an Instagram page, uh, Instagram thread, I guess, you know, dedicated to the 100. And in there, he, he places in some of the stuff about the skull in there because, you know, they're an enemy.
0: I'm enjoying this the more you do it, actually. Uh, <laughs> next up is Skyman, formerly Star-Spangled Kid, as it mentions here, his first appearance as Star-Spangled Kid was in Star-Spangled Comics Number 1. And then as Skyman in Infinity Number number 1, the art is by Tom Grindberg. And uh, we see uh, we see Sylvester just sort of standing there in his new costume. And in the background, we see him in his various roles as um, Star-Spangled Kid. It gets into the history about how him and the other Seven Children of Victory had got lost in time for for thousands of years, 50,000 years, got, got sent back in time, and then they were rescued by the JLA and the JSA. So here it actually mentions Aquaman, because it says he was rescued by Aquaman, the second Green Lantern, and the original Wildcat, who returned it to the 20th century, but at a point many years after he had left it. Now the kid is a little older today than he was in the 1940s, which is how he ended up being a leader of Infinity, Inc., even though he is a contemporary of the JSA. I think he, had a, he, he might have the most a group of affiliations of any – Hero. He's got four: All Star Squadron, Infinity Dust Society, Seven Soldiers of Victory, and he doesn't even mention the Super Squad, which is sort of like and an. And totally of should. Society. So he was a big joiner. He just he joined everything. He had the <laughs> Columbia Record, Columbia Record and Tape Club, the Republican Party. I mean, whatever it was you put in front of Sylvester, and he
1: joined it. So. <laughs> you had me at Columbia Record Club. <laughs> Ten CDs now, for see. a penny. What's that? Ten CDs for a penny. Hey, you know, I can't tell you how many times I joined that CD Club version. Um, you, you know, you, you, you get your 10, you fulfill, you quit. You get your 10, fulfill, quit. Anyway, um, I got a lot to say about this entry. So if you want to say anything else, take, go for it because I'm going to take he it He is over.
0: probably the most tiny man in the – who's who? He is height 5'8", weight 136. That's a tiny guy. Most men do not weigh 130. Most grown men do not weigh
1: 136 pounds. So, is, I'm 5'8, and I do not weigh 136. Yeah, I'll tell you, that he, much. That's,
0: that's, I mean, that, I mean, 5'8 is not particularly short. It's, it's, you know, it, that's not. I wouldn't. Backpedaling. No, I'm saying I would not call somebody who's 5'8 short, but 136 is that's really, really tiny that's for a guy. Freakishly
1: thin. Especially I mean, for
0: how I, how cut he is.
1: I got down to about 150 at one point, and I was getting dizzy. Like, all the time. Yeah. So, it's, uh, I, I weighed too little at that point, you know, as an adult. Um, I got a lot to say about this entry. All right. First of all, Grindenberg doing the art. Grinberg actually did Firestorm for a while. And uh, during the Blank Slate era, leading into the Elemental era. So, I have a soft spot for Grinberg. Some of his stuff I love. Some of it I'm not thrilled with. This, I love, 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 love this piece. Like, his huge, giant face in the background, that profile picture with the glasses, is totally boss. He looks so cool. I love the forefront image. I mean, it's a little sketchy-ish, but I think it works well for it, especially with that kind of traditional costume to make it look sketchy. Looks nice. In the background, him fighting people and him sort of you know, coming at the camera and the big Nazi stuff in the background. I love this piece. I just think it's gorgeous. Now, the more I think about this, with what with Star Spangled Kid being a patriotic, B coming out of the you know the Golden Age, C being JSA which everybody loves, and then D maybe I lost track. Anyway, goes on to become a new character, Skyman, which actually has a pretty cool-looking costume. Like, he should have been huge. In, in hindsight, this character deserved to be a major character. Fine. Skyman deserved to be a major character Fine for the 1980s. He like We should still be talking about him today as, like, the leader of the Justice Society kind of level. I think it, it, it should have happened for him. And I don't know whether it was the writing or the series or he didn't get this fair shake. Cause I know they killed him pretty early on, too. Um, I'm really regret that we didn't get to see a chance for Skyman to see his character, I hate to say it, but grow wings and fly. Because I really think this could have been a major character find. You know, this could have been DC's Captain America or something almost.
0: I'm not sure where
1: you're getting all this from. Maybe the picture just inspired me that much. Maybe so. I don't know. That and you know, reading his appearances in Super Squad. And, and knowing that, you know, they changed his identity from Star Spangled Kid to, to something else. And like, they, it felt like they were trying to take the character places. And uh, it just didn't, you know, they killed him off too soon. So, um, But he has no powers. We should talk about that. He, he's wearing, um, in, the suit is encapsulating his old cosmic converter belt, which came from Starman. So it gives him uh, energy blasts and he can fly. So it's kind of what he does. I think it's I'm, – I'm in love with this entry. So, And for more on this character, you can check out, uh, Michael, again, Michael Bailey and Scott Gardner's Tales of the JSA podcast.
0: Uh, next up is another half-page entry, Slam Bradley by Jim Apero. Uh There's not a whole lot going on here just because it's, there's not a lot of space, but it's great. It's a great little shot of Slam lighting up a cigarette and then in the background punching a bad guy with uh, the usual Jim Aparo nuclear force. Uh, his first appearance is in Detective Comics number 1. Which I think, I don't, I, I get all this stuff, I get, you know, this stuff wrong frequently, but I think might make him the single oldest character in Who's Who.
1: Hmm, maybe because so.
0: Because the only other book that DC published before Detective Comics was New Fun Comics. And New Fun Comics were just reprints of um, comic strips, there were no original characters in there. And then I think even if there were original characters, they were like funny animal characters. So uh, there weren't any adventure strips in new, advent- in new fun, which eventually became uh, more fun comics. And then right. of course later featured the Spectre and Dr. Fate and Aquaman. But that was later. So I think Detective Comics number one, that might make Slam Bradley the grandfather of all these characters.
1: Well, I was trying to think, is there anyone else that – they acquired from another company that may have been around before Detective Comics, like like Midnight. When did he first appear? He was in the forties. This is Detective okay. Comics number one. You're talking that's 1937
0: or 36. Yeah, I was thinking about
1: 36, or 37. Was yeah. I was thinking? Yeah.
0: Yeah. So this is this is a full two years before Batman. So uh, yeah, Slam Bradley might be the oldest one. Uh, I, I've always liked Slam Bradley. He was used in Detective Comics number 500. I liked him a lot there. Um, I think he seems to be a personal favorite of Darwin Cook who has used him in sure. a bunch of different stories, and uh, I always like that, too. I would read a Slam Bradley comic if Darwin Cook did it, but I would pretty much read any comic if Darwin Cook did it, so I guess that's
1: something <laughs> did, nice. did you mention the artist for this entry? Yes, Jim Apparel. Okay, yeah. Yes. The only time he drew the character, but uh, really did a nice, nice job. I mean, you know, the foreground shot of him lighting the cigarette in the background where he's just slamming somebody, you yeah. know? Yeah, great, great. Looks really nice. Yeah. Now, he, his detective comics run went for 80 issues. Then he came back for, like, 20 more. So he was published pretty consistently from 1937 to 1949. Uh, And as you mentioned, then he disappeared. From 1949, he disappeared. Then he did the Detective Comics 500, like you mentioned. And then it was Who's Who. So he hadn't been around for a long time on a regular basis. And for more on him, be sure to check out Anthony Durso uh, distributes a fanzine dedicated to Slam Bradley. So check that out.
0: (laughs) On his mimeograph machine. Um, All right, so next up... Is the character we've all been waiting for, uh, not, not only with this issue but pretty much with all of Who's Who? Uh, it's pretty much the main character of the DC universe as we know it. Uh, you, you know him. He's yours, Snapper Car. So Snapper Car first appeared. What? In what? Raven- what? <laughs> what? 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 What just happened? <laughs> no, did I, just wake up? did I wake up from a nightmare? No, of course I'm talking about everybody's favorite Mort Slipknot. Uh, who first appeared in Fury of Firestorm number 28 and features a costume with little holes for his ribcage, which is <laughs> cute. Uh, it is drawn by Joe Brasowski and Jerry Aserno in the print. I love he's doing something very basic. He's tied for a and he's just kicking him off a roof. Yep. You know? Yep. I don't know why you couldn't, you know, hang him with the ropes and stuff, but. You know, who am I to question Slipknot? And his uh, logo is made of worms.
1: No, it's made of rope. God. Oh, it's you're, you're rope. Being so oh, You're being sorry. so disrespectful. First of all, it, it's horrible already that the lasso of larceny has been reduced <laughs> to half a page. I mean, that's ridiculous. It's, 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 it's an indignity that should not be broke, uh, should not be allowed. Um, the lariat of lasciviousness. There you go. Very good. Uh all right, let's just, let's just say it like it is. Like we've said numerous times, and I don't know who told us this first, but I totally agree that you. He is a fantastic villain for Green Arrow. Uh, unfortunately, he's never fought him. Uh, yes, he is a Firestorm villain. He's one of my guys, uh, but even I make fun of him. Now, over recently on Firestorm Fan, we've featured an amazing custom made action figure of Slipknot. And, I mean, am I wrong? Is it not an oh, amazing figure? That's a, that's a
0: beauty. That's a
1: beauty. That custom is just gorgeous. I've actually been in communication with the guy who did it because uh, it's just so. Oh, they so let wild. him get? They
0: let him get phone calls where he's where he's
1: uh, institutionalized. No, they're, e- the, no, they're, emails, they're emails. they emails. They okay. they let him have access to like a public terminal almost a week. I think.
0: No um, sharp objects.
1: Well, someone has to type for them. I mean, they're in the straitjacket. Now, I like it talks about here. You know, it talks about the two thousand committee who was some group of the firestorm. I used to always, I, and actually, even last episode, I got confused between the hundred, the thousand committee, the two thousand committee. It gets all confused. Too many damn numbers. Anyway. Uh, it's funny here, though. It says, um, Slipknot was sent by the 2000 committee to kill Firestorm. Well, the other committee agents kidnapped Lorraine Riley, secretly Firehawk. You know why they don't name them, the other agent? Because her name was Bazooka Joan. That's why they don't bother to name her. <laughs> <sighs> I can't make this up. It's too good. So, Anyway, for more information on Slipknot, there is a blog you can visit. It's fearsturm... Fan, I think is what it's called. Um, so check that
0: out. Wow. I just want to say one other thing about Slipknot. He's listed as being 6 foot, 180 pounds. He looks way heavier than 180 pounds. He looks thick. He looks like a big guy. Yeah.
1: So yeah. I'm not really he getting is. that. All but, right. You know, we gotta talk, we got to talk about the costumes for. I'm sorry. Yes, it's got holes in the ribcage, but it's an all-black costume with lots of goldish-orange accents, like metal, orange-gold boots, metal gauntlets, orange-metal. He's got the big, long, puffy sleeves, which dangle. I don't even know what you call that. I don't know. And he's got the cowl. And the cowl actually has a design element, which is a lasso coming up over the top. And then where it's cut out of his face, like Batman's face is showing, is the lasso. That's the opening of the lasso around his face. And then he's got one on his chest, too. This is just totally boss. Let's leave it at that. <sighs> Next up is, as I said, snap. no, Wait, wait, wait. Now no, 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 I think of something else, too. You need to ask your buddy, Paul Kupferberg, about this. Because Conway plotted the issue, but Paul wrote it. So I want to know how much Paul had input into the creation of Slipknot.
0: I'm not wasting the man's time with those questions. (laughs) Uh, Next up is Snapper Carr, no one's favorite. First appeared in Brave and the Bold, number 28. Who cares? He's stupid. I hate him. Uh, He is an honorary member of the Justice League, which means they were showing an astonishingly bad... uh, Oh, I don't even have the energy to make a joke. I hate this guy. I always have. <laughs> he's he's a total twit. The art is by Joe Brzezowski, again, quite busy this month, Joe Brzezowski, and yeah. Bernard Sachs, who did some of the original inking for Justice League, so that was nice to get him. The listing itself is very boring. like the character just standing there, snapping his fingers. I just – just –
1: well, the surprint is really weird. The background shot of those three people— whoever, like—I don't even know who those people are up there. Um, there's like that's three, his family. Is that what that is? Yeah. Okay. And then there's that one shot where, like, there's a being with all these powers coming off of him, and it sort of reminds— because you know, Snapper Carr is the Rick Jones of the of the DC universe. They've established that many times, and. He's – like, that scene sort of looks like that one where Rick Jones and all – where all the heroes pour out of him in the Scree Crawl war. And I'm like, wait a minute. Did they do their version of that here? Now, one thing I, I'm either – I, I – clearly I own a reprint of it because I own all the JLA issues, but I haven't read. When he betrayed the Justice League, helping the Joker, like, was that like a retcon to explain why Snapper wasn't around anymore? Were they no, it happened the right?
0: in the issue. Happens happened right then. JLA number yeah. 78. And – was that just their way of getting rid of him, or how did he think already so. disappeared? No, no, no okay. I think they decided. Denny O'Neill was writing the book at that time, and he had decided he had just basically stopped writing certain characters into the book. And then, it's, uh, yeah, yeah, Aquaman was one of them, and uh, he had just decided then, okay, we're going to start getting rid of some some characters, and Snapper Carr was one of the ones they got rid of. So good on you, Denny O'Neill. I've always, I just, I've always hated this character. Never warmed up to him.
1: I like that he had a jalopy. So.
0: Eh, yeah, whatever.
1: Well, for more information on Snapper Car, there is a blog dedicated to him uh, really pouring out the love and demonstrating how much this character is important in the DC Universe, and that's Rob Kelly's JLA Satellite blog, so be sure to check that out.
0: Yes, go ahead. Look all you want for Snapper Card material. Next up <laughs> is uh, Solomon Grande, art by Murphy Anderson, one of the better pieces in the book, I would say. It looks like a – What? Ch- what? You go ahead and go ahead. I think this is one of the better pieces in the book. I really like the artwork. Uh, I think it looks like a children's book, and uh, which I think is appropriate for this character because he's born out of a nursery rhyme. Uh, he was first appeared in All-American Comics number 61, so he dates back all the way back into the 40s. Um, I love this little bit of his history because it talks about that he's basically just a bunch of crap in a swamp that came alive. <laughs> and so anyway, it mentions uh, – one day, he, on one Monday night in 1944, the strange creature emerged from the bog and slaughter swamp. He confronted two escaped criminals and took their clothes. The next day, the creature came upon a hobo camp where he met a criminal gang. When asked his name, the creature replied that he had none, but he'd been born on Monday. One criminal remarked he was like the nursery rhyme character Solomon Grundy, who was born on a Monday. The creature adopted this as his own, but was uh, seeing his superhuman nature. The criminals made Grundy their leader.
1: Embarked <laughs> on a
0: series of robberies in Gotham City. Yes, that is what you would do if you met a giant seven-foot uh, zombie with a a loose uh, ability to speak English. Is you make him the leader of your gang? That makes total right.
1: sense. Well, you mentioned he's a, he's a bunch of crap coming out of the life. Well, I mean, but at the at the core, the basis is Cyrus Gold. I mean, who was murdered and thrown in Slaughter Swamp. So I mean, he's he's still mostly a man. This is before they made him like an earth elemental kind of stuff. He's still mainly a man who was, you know, turned into swampy crap.
0: Well, but I mean he was a skeleton though. And it said it's just sure, sure, you know, okay. so it wasn't like it was a body that was left. It was a skeleton that started collecting leaves and other debris.
1: And he yeah. eventually just sort
0: of came alive. I see, I always found him kind of creepy. He's 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 worthy of a laugh on challenge of the super friends because of his the way he talks. Solomon Grande always speaks of himself in third person like hammer and stuff. So
1: um, but he also he also sounds like he's from Louisiana on that cartoon, which yeah, I love. Yeah, Solomon Grundy <laughs> get some Cajun chicken.
0: <laughs> Show me your boobs. So uh, you know, I mean, it was, <laughs> I, but I always like this guy. I always thought he had a creepy element just because he was like a zombie. You know, he's like—he's yeah. essentially a zombie. So and he's just big and strong and stupid and can just punch people and stuff. Although it does mention here at the end, Solomon Grundy can absorb certain forms of energy. What? such as magical energy, and manipulate the absorbed energy at will. Radioactivity once gave him telekinetic powers for a brief time. Because, yes, Solomon Grundy I'm sure would know what to do with telekinetic powers.
1: Oh, the Silver Age. Or the Golden Age. <laughs> oh. I, um, I love the character. Love uh, almost every incarnation of the character, actually. And there's been a lot of different ones. I mean, you've got, like, you know, the one in Starman, where he actually was a friend of the Starman and stuff like that. I mean, there's been a lot of different versions of Solomon Grundy, even the intelligent ones. And, um... I'm just not a huge fan of this piece, though, because I don't like his face. Um, I like the log. I kind of like his body a little bit. His legs look a little weird. But the face really just kind of throws it all off for me. So, but I do, you know, one of the things I like about this character is his origin changes frequently. I mean, they, they had one version, and according to Starman, is every time he died, he came back different, which I thought was clever. That way he could explain so many different versions of Solomon Grundy. Mm-hmm. At another point, they said he was actually a failed Earth elemental, which was nice, so. But if you want more for Earth 2 Chris, I mean, you want more of uh, Solomon Grundy, Earth 2 Chris actually runs a Twitter feed where he just posts statements in Solomon Grundy's speak, like Challenge of the Super Friends. Oh, man, I'd
0: follow that if they had that. That would be awesome.
1: Yeah.
0: I love him the serpent, he's just hitting Jade in the face with a
1: giant stick. I seem to recall later on, though, he like had the hots for Jade and was a supporting character in Infinity Ink following up being you know, a puppy dogging her around if I remember right.
0: It doesn't mention that here. It only mentions he extends his hatred for Green Lantern to his children. Doesn't get into that. Right, the but, it, but it may
1: have been just like right after this. Yeah. I could be wrong. I don't know.
0: Uh, next up is Sonar, another Green Lantern villain uh, drawn again, drawn by Gil Kane. I don't know really much about this guy. Um, I love his costume though and I think this is a great listing. I love the cape. He's got a Really cool looking gun. He would have made a great superpowers figure. Um, we see him in the background zapping Hal Jordan Green Lantern and uh, also zapping, uh, well, he's, 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 he's punching Hal Jordan and he's zapping John Stewart Green Lantern. Uh, his occupation is the ruler of Modora.
1: Yep. You know how many people are in Modora? No. Less than 400. Okay. So, so he's the king. Of a country that has less ki- less people than my stepson has his- in his middle school.
0: <laughs> Wait a minute! I have more Facebook friends in this entire planet. This Doesn't make
1: any sense. <laughs> uh, I like Sonar. I, like he looks like he belongs in a marching band, but um, <laughs> I like him later on. Like I love him in the. There's an elongated miniseries that's l- it's just a hoot. It's like a four issue. Uh, European vacation. Oh, that's thing. great. Yeah,
0: drummed by Mike Paraback, wasn't
1: it? Yeah, it was like it was either Mike Paraback or Ty Templeton. I can't. I, I I get some of their stuff mixed up because they had some similar looks there. It was super fun. And Sonar was like, I think Sonar was trying to woo Sue in that one. I mean, just uh, that's the kind of stuff I love. When, I love when Sonar is not taken terribly seriously. You know, sometimes when they try and play him too serious, it's just like, oh, this isn't working, guys. Come on, this is not working at all. <laughs> so. uh and this piece is much better than the Sinestro piece. You know, I like this piece by Gil Kane. Actually, it's it's I like uh, the the effect he did with the black sort of L shape he did, which looks nice, and the circle behind him. He did some nice, you know, sort of effects. So all in all, it's a good piece. And if you want more on Sonar, be sure again check out Chad's uh, Bokelman's Lantern Cast.
0: Next up is Son of Vulcan drawn by Ross Andrew and Romeo Tangal. This is a Charlton acquisition. He first appeared in Mysteries of Unexplored Worlds, number 46. Uh, I virtually know nothing about this guy. And uh, the logo always made me laugh because it felt like they called him Vulcan and then somebody remembered his actual name is Son of Vulcan. So they just got a pencil and or got, a, got a, a, a rapidograph and just wrote in Son of in the little tiny little letters there in between the V.
1: Right. Well, it's fair to say, I mean, he looks like a Roman knight. A Roman warrior, though. I mean, he's got the, the golden helmet. He's got the chest plate. He's holding a sword and an axe, and he's got you know stuff on his legs. And it's it's a it appears to be like a modern. Wait, I I read this and I just don't remember it that well. The kid who becomes son of Vulcan wasn't he like a modern day kid? Yes, yeah. He's a reporter for Worldwide News Syndicate. He's like Billy Batson. Yeah, there we go. So yeah, I mean, so it's a, it's a regular kid who becomes takes has to take over for Vulcan when Vulcan dies. If I seem to recall. Um, now, I actually read a couple of issues. Of, they did a revamp series in, like, the 2000s, and they tried to revamp Son of Vulcan. I actually read a couple. They weren't bad, but um, he showed up for Crisis. I mean, that's, he got a full page. I don't know if he really merited a full page at this point in his history. No, I don't so, think so. I, he has the, a, oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, you know, he showed up in Mysteries of the Unexpected Worlds. Basically – he was only around for, like, like one or two issues later, they renamed the series to Son of Vulcan. So it became, like, Son of Vulcan number 50 or something right, yeah. like that. It, all in all, he only had, like, five issues total where he ever appeared. And this is the only time Ross Andrew ever drew him. So it's sort of weird that, uh, you know, that happened. So go ahead.
0: Uh, I believe Son of Vulcan is
1: uh, has a historical footnote in comics
0: because there was an issue that they published back when it was a Charlton comic that featured a story by uh, Jerry Bales, you know, who was Roy Thomas's co-printer uh, for the uh, their alter ego fanzine in the like the very late 50s, early 60s, and it mentions on the cover that the story is written by someone from comics fandom. So it's like, hey, one of you basically wrote this story, and I think when I read about that story it is, like it is the first comic book ever to mention comic book fandom as that being a thing. Huh. You know, okay. it was like they were acknowledging, hey, there were people who read this, you know, read these comics enough that they would care about that there's a fandom sprung up around them. It's a completely useless fact, but somehow I remembered it. Is that Interesting. It? Yeah.
1: Well, um, more, I, I like this bit in the, in the text here. It says, um, in hand-to-hand combat, the son of Vulcan appears to have superior strength, though his overly muscled body may have been a detriment to his abilities and slowed him <laughs> down, enabling less powerful foes to beat him. What? Did Rob Lightfield draw him or something? Is that what happened? <laughs> He's so too strange. bulked well, up. Apparently so. He's roided out. So mm-hmm. if you want to get the answer to that question and more, uh, be sure to get in touch with Tim Wallace and get hooked up with his uh, Son of Vulcan Snapchat, and you can uh, get more information about it.
0: Oh, boy. Uh, next up is Space Cabby, drawn by Bernard Sachs. Woo! Again, Bernard Sachs. He's in this twice, twice in this issue. Uh, he first appeared in Mystery, Mystery in Space, number 26, Uh, I don't know much about Space Cabby. I have not read a lot of the stories, but I love the concept. I I love the idea, and I really want to get that mystery science – I keep saying mystery science theater – that mystery in space book that you recommended at the Trades spot
1: because Mm -hmm. this just
0: seems like such a fun premise.
1: Somehow, I have read some Space Cabby stories, and I have no idea where because I don't own that trade. They must have been reprinted in something I bought. Uh, you know, and I'm talking 20, 30 years ago. I read these things because I love space Cavity, and I remember enjoying a couple of his stories. So, now he was around quite a while. He was published pretty consistently from 1954 to 1958. Now Bernard Sachs did draw him at least one time, so he does. He is a good choice. I love uh, um, in the background where he's uh, where he's. You know, he's there's lots of beautiful women in this cover, which is really nice. Wow. You know, and then I love how he's erase, ar- arresting, it looks like, the space vampire from um, the Buck Rogers TV show the Saturday, <laughs> which is nice. And uh, it's just, you know, I, I'm in love with this. With the bow tie, he's, he wears an all-green outfit with a green jacket and a white button answer shirt and a green bow tie and a green hat This his taxi. And, folks, his taxi, his space taxi, just looks like a yellow cab with a, maybe an extra fin or two and rockets. I mean, that's it. It is hysterical. So I'm in absolute love with this.
0: Yeah, I really do want to read these. This seems like a fun idea. And this seems like it could be a great premise for a TV show. Because you could just have different characters every week that he's picking up.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, HBO, get on that. Right. Very cool. <laughs> and for more information on that, be sure to check out Siskoid. uh just launched a brand new blog dedicated completely to Space Cabby's adventures. So it's very cool stuff. All right.
0: Uh, next up is another location, the Space Museum, or just Space Museum which first appeared in Strange Adventures number 104. And then there's been various characters that appeared over the years. The last appearance was uh, Gardner Gordon was this young boy, first appeared in Justice League of America number 206. The art is by Carmen Infantino and Mike DiCarlo. Uh, I I always like the idea of the Space Museum because you you can go back and, you know, tell sort of past story, you know, go in the future and then tell stories that happened in the past. It, It wreaks havoc with continuity, but who cares, really? (laughs) <laughs> I, I'm surprised Bob Haney didn't write the Space Museum stories, actually. Uh, he may ask. Maybe he did. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, but it, the, the drawing is okay. It's pretty on the dull side. It's just pretty much some buildings, and then you see a couple of the characters in the background there. So there's not a whole lot uh, going on, but still, it's fun. It's it's a neat concept. And they said, I really am only familiar with Space Museum from that one issue of Justice League, where it's set in the future, and the father and son is the father's telling the son, the – the uh, Gardner gordon all about this case featuring the justice league of america and that he is the descendant of one of the characters which is kind of a fun they don't even say who it is they hint but they don't say that's really i think the only space museum story i ever read
1: you know if i'm not mistaken i think that was kind of the premise of all of them would be like they go to the museum and then they tell a story so they could tell a random space story you know uh, and say oh here's an artifact from the adventure of such and such you know so I think that that premise kind of carried over. I don't know if it was always the father and son but i I believe that's how it worked out again i i'm pretty sure I've read a story or two of space museum because again I remember it, so I must have read something and infantino drew this he drew the JLA, JLA issue, so he was a good choice uh space museum was a regular feature from nineteen fifty nine to nineteen sixty three I mean that's pretty impressive yeah it's a good so, run. now the surprint do you recognize what one of those the the left hand surprint images that's uh well that that's that's what's his name's time machine. That's Rip Hunter's time Rip machine.
0: Rip Hunter's time machine.
1: And is that is that Skeets? That's Skeets. So who's that guy? That's Booster Gold. That's Michael John uh, Michael Michael Carter. Michael John Carter, yeah. Michael John Carter. Uh, Which it Space mentions Skeets. here. It says a night watchman at the Space Museum. Exactly. Space Museum night watchman. He's about to steal a bunch of equipment and the Rick Hunter's time bubble and end up with Skeets to come to the past to become Booster Gold. So it's pretty awesome. Very exciting stuff. So um, Count Druncula actually has started a Yahoo group uh, dedicated <laughs> to Space Museum. So be sure to head over there. You can find Yahoo groups still in existence, believe it or not. Who knew?
0: Next up is Space Ranger, uh, who first appeared in Showcase number 15. He Wait. Was... I'm sorry. who was this? The Space Ranger. One more time.
1: The Space Ranger. It's Rick Star Space Ranger. Come on. From Star Command? Okay. Do do it and Beyond?
0: Okay. Jeez, wow. All right. Thanks for that. So anyway, he first appeared in showcase number fifteen. <laughs> uh this was another character that I don't know much about. Art by John Workman, who drew the mirror listing, so he's back here drawing again. And ink by Bob Smith. We saw sorts of fun things. You see him shooting an alien with his laser gun and then he's uh, playing around with his little with his little proty pal. What is that is that little creature's name? Oh Krill. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Curl, uh, I think. Pural, I, I say, guess. So. Yeah, and he's standing there operating uh, some computer, com- computer equipment. He's got a red and yellow uniform with a little bubble helmet. He's another fun kind of guy that I haven't read a lot about, but I would like to because this seems like a, a neat, a neat idea.
1: Yeah, um, it's you know it's, the art's a little off. You know, like his booties and, and his face looks cool. He's got a weird outfit. He wears all yellow with some red accents, like a red belt, red gloves, red booties and red weird shoulder piping but his helmet is just a clear helmet but it's like only a half helmet it's almost like a half clear cowl it's very strange so now that's not workman's fault i mean that's just the costume but it just the the art just didn't come together too well for me but this character published regularly from 1955 to 1965 this guy was around forever was he do you
0: happen to know was he in mystery in space or was he in strange adventures
1: I did not uh, jot that down, okay. so I am not I sure. I think
0: he was in Mystery in Space, but I can't be sure
1: because I do he, love that we're I love that we're getting all these space characters. This yeah, grouping the, well, they, so them all
0: cool. together. Yeah, I mean, he yeah. you know Showcase was their tryout book, and he got us he got his own book, his own strip right after Showcase. So obviously, he was a pretty big success, uh, even yeah. amid all the other characters that were you know the Flash and Green Lantern and Adam and Aquaman and Hawkman and everybody else. So he did pretty yeah. well for himself.
1: Well, uh, if you like this character, be sure to get in touch with Martin Gray. Uh, he started a fan club. If you send him eight farthings, because you know he lives in the UK, and uh, you mail that off to him, he will sign you up, and I think you get like maybe a patch or like a necklace or something for fan club <laughs> membership.
0: <laughs> I gotta sign up for that. Uh, next up is Spanner's Galaxy. First appeared in Spanner's Galaxy number one. This is one of the like. This is what reminds me of that Barren Earth listing where it's like it's not a character. That gets listed. It's just the general concept. It's the title. The title. You know what I mean? The title of the book. It's not not the world that they live on. It's just Spanner's Galaxy. You know, it's just like, okay, this is the name of the miniseries. the art is by uh, Tom Mandrake. And uh, we see all the characters running around, and then the main guy, and he's playing with his little monkey pal. Uh, I never read anything of Spanner's Galaxy, so I know nothing about this other than what I read in the listing.
1: Yeah, like, it, it looks like, honestly, a lot of fun. Like, Mandrake's face on the main guy is a little weird. Everything else looks nice, though. I, I love the logo. I love he's got a weird little creature sits on his shoulder, and he's got, like, you know, a red outfit with the big, big captain buttons and stuff. And and uh, the deal is he can basically, if I remember, he can teleport, right? That was kind of his shtick. Yes. He can teleport from one place to another, and he became sort of an outlaw, and he didn't know why. He was trying to figure out why he was an outlaw. It's set, like when I read the entry, I really want to go find this mini series now. It's only six issues. It's probably a hoot, you know. Mandrake drew it, so I'm, I'm halfway there already. So um, I'm really thinking about going to like Mile High Comics and just ordering these and reading them just for just for shits and giggles. I think it'd be fun. Hmm. So I would I would totally be into it. So um, if you want more information on Sanders Ga- Galaxy*, uh, Zoom Yakatori has started a uh, MySpace page dedicated to Spanish Galaxy*. So be sure to check that out. <laughs>
0: Next up is The Spawn of Frankenstein, uh, who, if they ever make a movie of, should absolutely be played by Iggy Pop. He first appeared in Phantom Stranger number 23 as a backup strip. It is drawn by Michael Kaluta. It is a beautiful listing. Um, I don't really understand how he weighs 300 pounds when he looks like he's bone thin, but he's seven, yeah. feet, he's seven feet tall, so I guess maybe that counts for some of it. Yeah, Um, he was a, he was a backup strip in the Phantom Stranger, and as much as I love the original Phantom Stranger, I really like the Spawn of Frankenstein backup strip. I thought it was a lot of fun and just creepy and weird and – had a lot of, you know, weird stuff. And he was basically just, you know, like a their gloss on the Frankenstein Monster, a slightly more hip version of the Frankenstein Monster. And we see him here with his shirt shirt off and his jeans and he's in front of this, you know, lab schematic that they've drawn. It's
1: a really nice listing. Is he holding like a pimp hat? Is that what that's That's what it looks like, yeah. Okay. Now Kaluda I know Kaluta drew some of the of the Phantom Stranger comics. Was it that he drew the Phantom Stranger comic or he drew the backup? He drew the backup. Oh, so he drew the spawn of Frankenstein. Yes, he okay. Did. Yeah. Well, it's. I, all right. This is gonna piss off a couple of listeners, but like the art is gorgeous. It really is. I mean, Rob described it quite well. You know, he's, he's Frankenstein's monster. You know, just very waif thin version of it um, with long hair. I hate. Frankenstein's monster in general. I don't necessarily have an issue with this ver- incarnation. I don't even know other than reading the listing. I don't know anything about it. And this one's actually listing. All, most of it takes place in modern day, battling Doctor Thirteen and everything. But um, it's funny. Like I don't mind vampires. I don't mind werewolves. I don't mind ghosts and all that stuff. I don't like it when it be. It's tied into a specific person. Same reason I don't like Dracula. Like when Dracula shows up in a comic, it's like I'm fine with vampires. But when you get to the specific guy from literature, I don't like it. Same with Frankenstein. I, like, what was the name of the Swamp Thing version of Frankenstein? Patchwork Man? Patchwork Man, yeah. Yeah. He didn't bother me at all. But once you slap the name Frankenstein in there, you are tying him to a literary scientist, and you're saying that, therefore, is canon. And I'm like, ah, I don't want that crap. You know, I just, ah. Mary Shelley, You know, thank you. So it, um, I don't know. I, I don't like the idea of the character, so... Maybe that's part of the reason I hate the Frankenstein character in the New 52. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe so.
0: Yeah, I always liked him. Uh, they said he the, the backup strip in Phantom Stranger was really pretty good, and then they had him cross over with the Phantom Stranger in the mm-hmm. book. So they sort of tied yeah. it, in. and that's when, they, that's when they, they got rid of him at that point, but uh, – um, yeah, those are some good stories. Those are some some good stories, and it, it ends with his history. He talks about the after an encounter with a sn- the culture of the cult of a snake god. The monster decided to to live in solitude, having tired of human beings. The present whereabouts of the spawn of Frankenstein are unknown. I don't know if he must have appeared at some point after that. I just can't think of when he did. I mean, he, he appeared on the cover. That's where he appeared next. Well, I mean, you know, and whether he's ever got used again. For any other stories, I don't know. but I always, I'm sure he did. I
1: always dug him. I mean, think about it. How many times did Frankenstein show up in DC Comics? I mean, you know, The question is whether it was this inc- incarnation or not. So, right, yeah. right. Um, for more information on him, Harlan Freilicker is actually, uh, a while back, started up an AOL page. So you can check that out. Welcome. Dedicated to Spawn of Frankenstein. Uh, You've
0: got monsters. <laughs> Next up is The Spectre. Which you should have been the main character. On the cover, he's actually just listed as Spectre. But here he is, The Spectre. Drawn by uh, Mike Macklin and Jared Ordway. Again, flipping the art duties. Uh, Here he is, The Spectre. Great image of him flying. And then we see him fighting that demon where he's smashing the globe over his head. We see him attacking some some regular crooks. And then a close-up of him as Jim Cargan. He first appeared in More Fun Comics number 52. My favorite bit of this is the powers and weapons, because he says the Spectre was the most powerful known being in the universe, capable of virtually any feat. His powers vastly increased over the years. Right. How do you vastly (laughs) increase somebody who can do anything? How does that work? I
1: think think what they're trying to say is when he first showed up in the 40s, he didn't have that power level. Like, in his original adventures, like, he was just like a dead dude. Like, you know, he, he was dead, and he would, like, the Spectre costume, he would actually put it on. He would put on the white suit, if I remember right, and the gloves and stuff it wasn't his skin originally, and then you know he just would like knock out the bad guys with a good solid Corgan punch you know it wasn't as, as time went by he started getting powers and then eventually you know by the '70s he's all- powerful you know he's, he's a god- level character by then. So. He,
0: he is the um, other creation of Jerry Siegel mm. that everybody knows everybody, everybody knows that other one. Uh, But then it mentions at times the specter utilized the mystic ring of life to perform feats that were then beyond his powers. (laughs) So he actually got a ring of
1: life which made him even more powerful. Yeah. Well, it talks about how – there was a weird thing about him being trapped in a body for 20 years. He trapped in Jim Corrigan's
0: body, yeah. And then then, when the evil astral being Asmodus came to Earth, the specter found himself unable to leave Jim Corrigan's body. Asmodus also was trapped in a human body. Two decades later, however, the Spectre was finally able to leave Corrigan's body when Asmodus' human host died and the Spectre defeated
1: Asmodus. Is that 20-year period, is that like? Is that supposed to represent the era from when the Golden Age to Silver Age, when superheroes just disappeared and why he wasn't around, maybe? It just it seems odd to say he was out of action for 20 years. It's weird.
0: Yeah, quite possibly. I mean, they did bring him back in, I think it was showcased with kind of a big fanfare. Because he did get his own, and then he got his own book in the '60s. So he was kind of one of the bigger hits of the Golden Age, in terms of uh, the Silver Age, in terms of bringing Golden Age guy back. Um, He was also the star of a DC animated short. Did you ever see that one?
1: Oh my god, it's so good! I showed it to my wife.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it, it has a feel of a '70s.
1: Crime thriller, which is intentionally, intentionally, yeah, they
0: did it on, on purpose. They made it seem like those Jim Aparo stories, and it's it's really a lot of fun. It's by I think by far the best of the animated shorts that they did.
1: The Jim Aparo should have drawn this entry, to be honest. But you know, Macklin and Ordway are no slouches. It's beautiful, and in fact, honestly, if you just showed me that Spectre picture, I might even sit there and go, well, that might be an Ordway, maybe. I mean, it might be an Aparo, yeah, because it kind of the face and stuff looks very Aparo esque to me. So, hmm. I don't uh-huh. know, but. So good. I, there's a weird thing in here where it says like – they talk about his, his role in Christ's infinite Earth. So he did have a pretty role. But it says as the specter comatose, that is what actually – his energy flew back in time and powered the Spear of Destiny. What? Yeah. <laughs> I don't – yeah.
0: i has got to be –
1: that's got to be from, like, Last Days of the JLA, JSA or something. I don't, I don't
0: think so. I don't remember that being that part of it, but I don't know. Maybe I haven't read that in a long time. So,
1: yeah. Well, for more information to get an answer to that question, be sure to check out Tom Panarese is starting up a new podcast actually dedicated to the Spectre.
0: Next up is Speedy, the original, who first appeared in More Fun Comics number 73, which, of course, appeared it was the first appearance of Green Arrow and Aquaman. It's a very uh, historic issue. Joined by Eric Schauenauer. Uh, who did not do a lot of DC work, but he does a mm-hmm. really nice job here. It's a really beautiful listing. Uh, we see him in his costume. We see him without his mask. We see him getting training. We see him being turned into a centaur, because sure, why not? And then we see him standing there <laughs> with green arrow as they're firing the bows, because him getting turned into a centaur is the connected to that story with the, the – um, uh, Seven Soldiers of Victory got sent back in time and disappeared for a bunch of years.
1: I was going to say, you better know that one.
0: Yeah, it references, <laughs> references the same story. So, uh, but yeah, it a, yeah, it's a cool little character. He's much more of a young man than he is in the other speedies we'll get to in a moment.
1: Well, Eric Scherrower is known probably best for his, this time around this time, but shortly after this, race, he's working on Nexus. So, you know, if he's drawn Nexus, he's good. And uh, this is actually probably one of my favorite uh, pictures of uh, art in the book. I just love it. It's so much fun. It's full of joy. The kid looks happy. Yeah. You know, his face is happy in the background. He's working with Green Arrow. It's, it's really, really nice. It's very sad. They're, they're very ambiguous about what happened to him post-crisis. It says the original Green Arrow died in the so-called Crisis on Infinite Earths, but it's not yet known uh, how the crisis may have affected Speedy. Yeah. Huh. You just don't know. And it says in a, his, his facts he's supposed to be blocked. I didn't know that. Yeah, he's not – yeah, well, he does, he's, he's certainly – He's got red hair here. He's but, got red yeah.
0: hair here, yeah.
1: I mean, well, for more information on this Speedy and the next one, be sure to check out Aaron Bias' Green Arrow blog that hasn't been updated in over a year. Has Just it been saying. only a year, really? It, well, there was a post, but I think it was part of a crossover. Anyway, I love that blog, damn it. Aaron Bias, you. you. Sorry. I'm venting. <laughs> next up
0: is the other Speedy, uh, Art by Stan Walk. Woke? I woke. Know, I woke? Okay. First appearance from Adventure Comics number 250. This is the much more angry, buff Speedy. This is the same guy that um, fathered a child with Cheshire. Uh, the Speedy who did drugs. He's had a lot more adventures than the other Speedy. He is one of the world's best archers and exploits an extraordinary array of specifically designed arrows. Among them are his explosive arrows arrows which release smoke or knockout gas, arrows with strong, thin arrow lines attached and arrows carrying nets. He does not shoot arrows to kill opponents.
1: The other one says that, too, about him not killing. Stan Woke's probably better known for his work in Airboy at this point than, than working for DC. Um, how did him shooting up heroin not make it into the serpent?
0: I, I don't know. That is one of the more iconic covers of the, DC, of the 60s comics.
1: Yeah. My Ward Speedy
0: doing, is a drug addict.
1: And, uh, the funny, the story here where they talk about green arrow shooting arrows that are magnetized, I mean, uh, speedy shooting arrows that are magnetized. I don't know where that appeared, but I have read that very recently, like in the last couple weeks. So it must have been in the back of something we were reading. And, uh, I read that story very, it's very funny. It's like, it's like, as a reader, you can completely tell what's going on. It's like, no crap, they're magnetized. Why don't you go understand that, speedy? It's so obvious. Anyway. The surprint is nice. Here we've got
0: the 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 him without his mask, him and Cheshire and their baby, and then him and Green Arrow, and then him just by himself. And then there's some nice design elements in the background. It's, a, it's overall a nice piece. It, there's a little, it's kind of a lot of dead space, but uh, overall it's it's pretty sharp. And he's, I lo- I always liked his costume. It was like the color combination I thought was pretty sharp.
1: Yeah, it's sort of like a, a classic, you know, 1950s version, and both Speedies really. Of, like, a green uh, of a uh, um, Robin Hood costume, really is kind of what it is. It's like a Robin Hood costume done in reds and yellows, and, uh, and it looks decent. So. Yep.
0: Next up right. is a uh, half page Spellbinder. Oh,
1: God. Um, <laughs> Spellbinder and Signalman need a team. You know, up. We
0: are really scraping the bottom of the barrel of some of these Batman villains. The art is by Carmen Infantino and Joe Giella. He first appeared in Detective Comics number. 358. It is a very boring listing. His costume is utterly rid- His costume makes Signalman's look like the Riddler. I don't know. I don't even know they, what it's to say.
1: Uh, you mean it, make, it makes Signalman look good? Is what I guess saying.
0: so, yeah. I mean, it is <laughs> yeah. rid- utterly ridiculous. Um, And in the showroom, we see him zapping Batman with his little mind powers. He's just a complete goof. He's just a complete and utter goof. I mean, I, you, know, you can do something with him I guess if you're a good writer, but he is not physically imposing here. And his occupation is an art forger. So he's very sensitive. He's, you know, he's, he's a culture gamer.
1: <laughs> well, and it's typical Infantino drawing, which doesn't help either. So hideous costume. It's, it's a miss. Half page. Move on. Just be sure, again, visit Kyle Benning's Batman blog. So find out more about Spellbinder. Oof.
0: Ouch. Uh, next up is the other half pages. Spider Guild which is gi- basically just a giant spider who carries weapons, which is as terrifying as it suggests. The art is by Kevin O'Neill, who is the perfect guy to get for some horrible creature like this. Uh, he yeah. first appeared in Green Lantern number 167. And he said it's basically a giant life-size spider with all of his arms who carries around various weapons. And he's well, got he has
1: a, clothes and stuff, too. Well, he's
0: got clothes, but, I mean, uh, and he's got, like, goo dripping from his tusks or whatever he's carrying. And there's a lot of stuff going on in the background. I can't really make it all out. There seems like a spider ship that, that they're flying around in. Uh, re- it's a really creepy idea of, like, giant, sentient, life-size spiders. That is just,
1: ugh. Well, what it is, is like, I, if you read the entry, it's, it's ugh, and that's what you're seeing in the background. Is It talks about only one or two spiders will fly these giant ships. They're all robotic ships, and they have robotic sentries and stuff. And they go and land on a planet. And they basically just bury the ship and build these underground nests, and they drag the people down there. They lay They lay a bunch of eggs, and then once they've subjugated the population, all the eggs hatch, and the little spiders come out and eat the population. That's... They take over the planet, and then they make another – and that, then the people – the, all these new spiders in this new colony then build more colony ships, and they, they repeat the process over and over. It's actually really, really clever – and it, it, it builds well on what we know about spiders and our human natural icky reaction to spiders. So it's it's really neat the way they, they built that. It's very creepy. And uh, Now, Kevin O'Neill did actually do a little work for Omega Men. I didn't know that. So um, He yeah, also did some day.
0: Green Lantern. I think he did some Green Lantern Corps backups as well.
1: Yeah, I probably did. Probably did. So
0: it's, it's well, the, the, the idea is really creepy. I'm kind of like trying to picture how they worked it into a Green Lantern comic because it seems almost Well no, no, no
1: that was the introduction of the omega man is what it is.
0: Well no but i just mean the, the that that whole idea burying underground and grabbing people it seems almost like a horror comic i'm trying to picture it in a dc universe book.
1: Well again i imagine they just showed up in the green lantern issue with the omega man as the bad guy and it wasn't until you know later on when it was in the omega man series that they started exploring the creepiness of it. Yeah. Them, <laughs> so uh, well if you want more you know um, our buddy Philemon has actually started up an Omega Men BBS, so you can dial up to that and log in and check out more about the Omega Men. So.
0: Next up is The Spook, uh, again by Irv Novik and inked by Bill Ray. He is an old – not a, he looks more old-timey than he is, actually. He looks like he'd be somebody That's from the true. 40s. But he first appeared in Detective Comics number 434, which is – you're talking the 70s. Uh, he was an architectural draftsman for a large engineering firm involved in the city planning for Gotham City. His very real name is Val Caliban. Uh, Caliban, uh, Caliban, Caliban tampered with the plans for Gotham City's new prison system, including the plans for his maximum security prison to permit the construction of a network of secret passages throughout the prison. After the prison was built and put in operation, Caliban, C- Caliban, yeah, Caliban, intended to use the secret passages <laughs> to release convicts for a high price. That's a great idea for a villain. I think that's a really neat idea. That he's like, I'm a bad guy who's making money off of other bad guys. That that's yeah. cool. I like that idea a lot.
1: I have the same note. I wrote really neat MO. <laughs> the the art's fine too. I like the art. I mean the costume's a little wonky for being so current, you know, it, this time it's very contemporary creation, but the art looks like you said, very forties. Uh and the name's very unfortunate, especially, you know. Someone in the 70s should have been like, um, you know, let's get a different name. That might offend somebody.
0: So. Yeah, I mean, but, you know, I guess back then, you know, even so, the sp- well, yeah, I'm sure back then it was a little rough, but, you know, for the longest time, the spook just meant a ghost, and that's what they am right.
1: like, like, you know what I mean, so. so. Well, again, check out Kyle Benning's Batman blog for more information on this one.
0: Yep. Next up is Sportsmaster, by Chuck Beckham, who... Yeah, as a character, this guy should not work at all because the costume is ridiculous. But Chuck Beckham makes him look really neat. I mean, this is a really nice listing. Uh, He's standing there, and he's got his cool little half mask on. And then you see him in the background with his bat. And then he's with the Huntress, who he later married. He's fighting uh, Starman, a Black Canary, and then Green Lantern. Uh, His real name is Crusher Croc. Uh, which, work, which works just as well as a superhero name as Sportsmaster, actually. I think he could have been called Fisher yeah. Croc and it would have been fine. Uh, again, a really goofy villain because he's basically just a, a, a bad guy that stocks, stocks himself from you know a sports equipment uh, store. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, he looks really cool. Chuck Beckham did a nice, really nice job on this portrait.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think it looks really nice. He did a great, uh, he's, he was known really for doing Miracle Man, Badger, and Alien Encounters. I wasn't familiar with him. So, you know, it kind of gives you, it gives a, a very realistic sort of character that you would almost see in an indie book rather than, you know, standard superhero proportion. So I think he looks really great. And if you read his entry, his M.O. sounds really cool too. It's, it's, until you get to the art and you realize he's got a baseball bomb and jet skis, uh, water skis that have jets on them. Then you're like, oh, he's corny. Okay. Yeah. So and uh, him and Huntress had a daughter together, Tigress. So yes, which is, uh, became a character later on. So
0: they yeah. had a uh, they had a great cameo in the Brave and the Bold episode Aquaman's outrageous adventure, where you see Aquaman is in the RV with Mira and riding alongside on a family vacation is Sportsmaster Huntress and their bored kid. In
1: the background. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. right. Yeah, Aquaman's Outrageous Adventure. Mm-hmm. Now, he also played a pretty big role in the Young Justice cartoon because he was, uh, well, I won't say who he was as a spoiler, but he was a, he was an important character in that, too. Yeah, yeah good for him. Yep.
0: Next up is, well, um, well, sorry, uh, hold on. sorry, sorry,
1: sorry. Well, well, Keith G. Baker, uh, one of our great buddies who's really a big fan of fictional sports teams. He actually has started a fantasy uh, superhero league, and Sportsmaster is sort of his token character he uses all the time. So check that out.
0: Next up is Stalker by Steve Ditko and Joe Orlando. And Stalker – you know, Stalker reminds me that, like, between Ditko and Kirby, two of the three of the, the building blocks of the Marvel Universe, they put out a lot of goofy concepts at DCs in the 70s you had Shade the Changing Man, Stalker, Sandman, the Green... Like, there was... a the, These older guys were really pitching lots of new ideas. None of them really took, but... Because Stalker debuted in his own book, Stalker number one. I think it lasted, like, six issues, and
1: then it was gone. Uh, four.
0: <laughs> four. Uh, four, okay. I was even giving him more credit than he deserved.
1: So I'm reading this entry. By the way, Stalker looks like every 12-year-old's first D&D character, is what he <laughs> looks like, basically. Uh, you know, He's got the green... It's just—it's a D and D thief or something, okay? With red eyes. Um, when I when I was rereading this issue for this podcast, I was like, "Who the hell is this? I have never heard of this character in my life." And then I get to the fact that he had his own series. I'm like, with "WTF? I don't even remember this in the fifty cent bins at the at the comic store I worked at. This is like a what?" So I I got nothing on this other than Dicko's zaniness, really. So. Yeah. There's a lot going on
0: in the background. I mean, there's like, like four or five different little scenarios. I mean, it looks cool enough, but it's just – I don't know. This never grabbed me as a kid. I was just like, ah, okay, it's another barbarian character and you know,
1: whatever. Yeah. Well, check out um, – Ange just starting up a, a Stalker blogspot page, a uh, blog, so be sure to check that one out.
0: Next up is Starboy from the Legion of Superheroes regularler Roque and Joe Rubinstein, and it 's him in his then current costume i don 't know if it 's changed, but it's it's uh, it 's just one big piece that 's all of a star field with white boots and white gloves now, Shay, do you know how uh, artists get that star effect the little galaxy effect on the costume?
1: Uh, well, I assumed they would like sort of draw and then somehow reverse it
0: uh, no, the way uh, you do it and this is the way I was taught at the Gilbert school was. You get a bottle of what well, shows how old this is you get a bottle of white out yeah and you pour it on a toothbrush and then you flick the toothbrush at the black paper and it gives oh. you that star pattern because it, it makes it, bl- it makes dots of different sizes different slight widths and it's not you know it's not drawn in by hand it actually looks like a mad spray and that's how you do the star effect
1: that is really really cool to know him and Donna Troy uh, got a lot of mileage out of that effect yeah, that's so. right, yeah. Now, my issue here is he's Starboy, right? You know, it's Tom Kalor. And, uh, by the way, Tom Tom Zoller totally stole the spelling of his name from here. But um, he's Starboy, okay? First of all, he's got a beard. Shouldn't he be Starman at this point? And and he's tapping Dream Girl, who, regardless of our argument about who's the hottest Legionnaire, she's really supposed to be, at least, the hottest Legionnaire. So he's tapping that, and he's got a beard, and he's still star boy? Something's not right there. No, something's not right at all. So Greg LaRock does a great job, though, in the art. Um, I was reading this entry. There's some things I didn't realize about that. Like, when he joined the Legion, he had basically Kryptonian superpowers. But then it seems like one issue later, it sounds like, they got rid of him and said, oh, no, 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 that was a temporary thing. <laughs> like I wonder if like the writers, you know, like Jim Shooter came on board or something and said, no, 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 no. We've got too many with Superboy and Monel and Ultra Boy already. Let's let's change Starboy around some or something. I don't know. But he he Starboy, Starman or Starboy, does come to the 20th century at different points though, and or 21st whichever, and uh, hangs around with some various people. And I don't want to spoil any more than that. Just to say, it's pretty cool stuff.
0: Starboy was the focus of one of the very few issues of Legion of Superheroes I've ever read.
1: Oh, well, there you go. Good for him. Well, you can find out more about Starboy on the Legion blog that nobody is doing right now, which is a crime.
0: <clears throat> Finally, and we're going to wrap it up with Starfinger. Uh, this, I mean, I- I'm going to imagine that um, this guy stole his costume from rejected ideas from Black Manta. That, uh, you know, just was like, okay, this is like a prototype version. I'm going to have a red mask and... I'm going to have you know, this was, armor, and then again, Starfinger's like, I can use that. It's fine. I, I can do it. It's perfectly, you know.
1: It was a, it was a garage sale. Yeah, actually. absolutely. Uh, he it, first appeared Starfinger's in the 30th century, so like, it's like, so, you know, Ocean Master's house had like an estate sale. Yeah. I mean, I'm sorry, Black Manta had like an estate sale, and then someone put it in their attic, and it sat there for a thousand years, and then somebody sold it in a garage sale, and that's where Starfinger got it. Yeah,
0: go. his first appearance is Adventure Comics 335. He's a Legion villain, and the art is by Martin King, who I'm not familiar with and Del Barris, Woo! And, uh, and the powers and weapons, which ends the issue. Starfinger possesses no known powers of his own and is a poor combatant. <laughs> Who would have guessed the guy in the giant crab head would be a poor combatant?
1: <laughs> well, technically, I love how they straight up admit he's cowardly. I love that. Because uh, you don't see that in the art. But in the No, end he, he actually looks too- kind of,
0: I don't want to say he looks badass, but he's, he's kicking butt in the art. I mean, he's blasting yeah. several of the Legion members and stuff. So yeah. He doesn't look like a, a wimp the way they write about him.
1: Well you're sort of predisposed to like people that look like this anyway, but um technically he should be Starfinger two though, because he tricked Lightning Lad into being the first Starfinger. So <laughs> I'm just saying. And Del Barris, I am now in love with after several issues of Who's Who, I'm in love with Del Barris as an inker. I think he just does some great inking. So gorgeous the use of lines and darks and ugh. Oh. Thick lines and skinny lines, the whole thing. It's a nice, it's nice.
0: piece. I mean, it's a nice drawing. Yeah. I just I said, just can't get over that he looks like a giant, he's got a giant crab
1: head. Yep. Yeah. And, of course, you, you know, you can get more Starfinger over on the – wait for it. That's right. The Legion blog that no one's doing. So. <laughs> uh, and
0: that is the final entry for the issue. Uh, we have the wrap-up page telling everybody where you can find these characters. Shrinking Violet and the Starboy are in Legion. Signalman and Spook list appeared in Batman number 400. Uh, I like this. Silent Light last appeared, sort of, in DC <laughs> Challenge number six.
1: That's my favorite comment.
0: It mentions Silver Deer, Silver Scarab, Sinestra and Sonars, Guitarists, Skull, Skyman, Solomon Grundy, Space Museum, the Spectre. I think Spectre may be dead, but he's not gone. He will return. Right. Speedy 2, and then Starfinger has been defeated several times by the Legion, but the new version will be tougher. So, again, one more dig, one more kick in the pants of Starfinger before the book goes out. <laughs>
1: And there's some great, great covers back here with, with Legion. You know, I think you mentioned the Sensor Girl, and you got a Warlord cover. You got a Booster Gold cover with, I think that guy's name's Chiller, if, if I remember right. Getting Ready to Kill, Booster, and Infinity, Inc., and the Guy Gardner with Green Lantern Corps, and Secret Origins with Shadowlands and Dollman. Oh, so good. Such good stuff.
0: Wow. Well, there we go. Who's who number Woo. 21 in the books?
1: Yeah. All right. Well, uh, folks, time for who's who, how's, and why's. This is your feedback from previous episodes. So um, I just wanted to mention two things in, in the last episode. I screwed up. I, it was late. I don't know. I, uh, we were reading the letters page, and I mentioned – who we were talking about who's who in Superman. Well, what I said was who's who in the Legion – And then Rob just kept going, knowing knowing what I was trying to say, talking about the Superman. So I don't know if that confused you guys or not. I apologize. We were talking about the book Who's Who in Superman that never materialized. And then later on, when we were talking about the Secret Society of Supervillains, I said it was mainly just a vehicle for for, uh, uh, Manhunter. And I said Captain Cold. I meant Captain Comet. So anyway, I sincerely apologize. All right. All right. Our
0: first letter is from Alexander Osias, who's who really takes me back to my time in the, to the time in my life that I was life-changing, when I moved from the Philippines to the U.S. and ended up staying there for over nine years. Comics fandom is a big part of my coping mechanism with this move, and I enjoy agreeing, disagreeing, or learning about your stuff from your podcast and the rest of the community tied to it. Keep up the great work. Thank you very much, Alexander. And he has some specific comments about a couple characters. He mentions Riandar. A half page? Really? To be honest, I was very intrigued by the Omega Men due to one, the name, two, Marvel.
1: I stopped there. I stopped there real quick. Folks, sounds like he's going to support the Omega Men here, doesn't he? All right. All right, go ahead, Rob.
0: Okay, subtle. Uh, one, the name, two, Marvel's involvement, three, a kick ass pick of the team as an ad. But it seems that whenever I picked up an issue, I never bought it. <laughs> the sad song of the Omega Men. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the book lasted for like 45 issues, so, you know, it did, did all right. Uh, he also mentioned Sabak, trying to beef up the villain team of the Big Red Cheese because he was being folded into the DC Universe. But this pick only made me think of an evil monk. Gargamel,
1: is that you? <laughs> <laughs> I'll get you, you Smurfs. Uh, we heard from Paul Benincasa, maybe. Uh, he says, I've been enjoying show and catching up on the Who's Who episodes. I thought I'd send along a little something I have, and maybe you could post it when you get around to covering the T issue of Who's Who. Well, uh, Paul, I didn't want to wait simply because we will forget. We're not that bright. So I uh, thought we'd go ahead and tackle it now. It says, back in 1991, I had the pleasure of meeting Marshall Rogers at a convention. He was selling pages of original art, and he had a Toyman art- toy artwork for sale. This particular work was split up between two pages, with the main figure on one page and the serpent on another. I love the drawing of Superman and all the tiny background details he put into the items on the shelves. He sold them as a set, and I split the pages between myself and a longtime friend. I don't know if other artists do their interests this way, but Marshall really shined on who's who. Uh, well, we can answer that. Yes, uh, that's exactly how they did all the surprint stuff. We talked about that previously, on a previous episode where they would draw the Serpent um, on the board and they would draw the front image on the vellum that went over it. So cool. since I bought Who's Who from my local comic shop as it came out. Shout out to the now-defunct Little Nemo's comics and collectibles in Forest Hills, New York. My friends and I had a blast reading these issues and discovered long-lost characters. It was a great time to read DC between who's who, crisis, and the history of the DC universe. Man, dude, you are so right. Absolutely right. City said he also uh, included a scan of an Aquaman commission he got from Jim Aparo back in 2003. You can see Jim still had it in 2003. And uh, he's one of many people who mentioned – when I mentioned Shining Knight was on a Justice League uh, Unlimited episode – they all pointed out, and I didn't get it at the time when I watched it, but the entire Seven Soldiers of Victory actually managed to appear in this cartoon. So how cool is that?
0: That's a good episode. Yep. Uh, we got an email from David Pasquarella uh, referencing uh, my comments about that the Star Labs building is based on a real building. He mentioned, just wanted to add to the discussion regarding the Star Labs entry. The building here is in New York City. It looks familiar to the design of Star Labs. It is the Grace Building, which is located at 1114 Avenue of the Americas, New York, New York. I think this building is also seen in Superman the movie in the scene where Superman catches the cat burglar, and then he sent us a nice picture of the building. That sounds about right, because that would have been the area I told you, I remember that we we ran across that building while we were on a Cubert School field trip and that really would have been where we were, it was like right in the center of Manhattan. So that's probably it. Now there is a follow-up. We got an email from someone named John who mentions they says the question of which building inspired the Star Design Labs is interesting. There are a couple of buildings that have a flared base, like the WR Grace building and the Solo building. But the first appearance of Star Labs was Superman number 246, cover dated December 1971, which predates the construction of both those buildings. What I don't know is whether the issue, whether the Star Labs building actually appears in that issue. I don't have it. For all I know, the first appearance was more of a first mention. E.g., "I'm Doctor So and So from Star Labs." But if it did, it's possible Courtois may have been inspired by Chicago's first Chicago, now Chase Tower, which has a flared base that was completed in 1969. So we got to look into that, and I'm sort of fascinated by that. I love that it's all real-world stuff, but I I kind of want to find that issue with Superman just to see if Starlab does in fact appear or, as he says,
1: it's just a mention. Well, I just love the fact that all our listeners either know this stuff or did the research. I mean, it's awesome. very impressive. Yep. So. Yep. Uh, all right, we heard from our buddy Ryan Daly, known as Count Druncula. He says, on the cover, the black area showing Shakira's rear end looks like the shadow of Sergeant Rock's leg. That lends further support to Dan Jurgens' suggestion that she's naked in a human form. Them hips don't lie, after all. <laughs> he says, uh, Shag, I like your point that Sandman straddles the line between superhero and pulp, de- pulp detective. It's for this reason that I think the character would translate much easier to television or film than many other known DC heroes. But instead, we're going to get a Batman show with every character except for Batman. And he says, Shadow Thief makes my top ten DC supervillains. Something about the simplicity of his look hits the appropriate fanboy buttons for me, and his entry is amazing. Kubert nailed this page as beautifully as any of his Hawkman illustrations. You know, he's right there. That shadow thief image from last issue was really, really spectacular. Yeah. It really was. Good stuff. Uh heard from our buddy Siskoid. He says uh, – he talks about Reander, which was uh, you know Starfire's brother. He says, not only is there no pronunciation guide to help with how to pronounce his name, but this is the last such guide in volume um, – oh, the last such guide appeared in volume 18, the very last. So who's who would not feature a guy – a pronunciation guide again? So look at that. I didn't even notice that. I said one reason Samman deserves to have both costumes. Oh, could we mention that uh, both costumes had a first appearance which we thought was odd. So one of the reasons Samman deserves to have both costumes given first appearances is that they might as well have been different characters. In fact, I'm surprised Roy um uh, he's talking about the writer of All-Star Squadron. There. Roy Thomas. I was, yep. Roy, I'm surprised Roy didn't put gas masks on, put the gas mask same in on Earth 1 as an early pulp hero to compete, uh, complete with his Gal Friday, like the Shadow and the Spider. And Earth 2's Wesley Dodd as a generic sound, costume crime fighter with a boy sound kick. The gas mask is uh, the gas mask, and post gas mask stories are really quite exclusive to one another. As for the prophetic dreams origin, it may well be a Neil Gaiman thing to tie into the original Sam in with the later models. If you look at Secret Origins Number Seven by Roy Thomas and Michael Baer, which came out the same month as that issue of Who's Who, there's no mention as the motivator for the character, and Roy isn't the kind of guy who omits details that were established before. <laughs> Um, he corrects us and mentions that the second Starman, which was the, the Kirby Starman, was created by both Jack Kirby and Joe Simon. Because we, we started by saying it was, then we backpedaled, but he says, nope, nope, Joe Kirby did help. They collaborated on the first issue together before Michael Fleischer took over scripting. Uh, then he mentions Sergeant Rock – this is interesting. I hadn't heard this. I don't know if you had, Rob. You didn't mention his first appearance controversy. Uh, they name Our World, Our Army at War number 81 as first, though that story really features the story of The Rock of Easy Company, which is the second prototype for Sergeant Rock, but has several differences with the finished product, most prominently being called Sergeant Rocky with a Y. If it was a one off, like, um, like a lot of stories in anthologies at the time, the real Sergeant Rock wouldn't appear until issue 83. The very first prototype was in, in GI Combat number 68, simply called The Rock. So uh our Army's uh – I'm trying to figure out what O-A-A-T is. Our, our Army. Army at War. It's a T, not a W, though. Whatever. What? Our Army at War number 81 is an odd transition choice, but you could make a case for it because Rocky is an easy company. I didn't know there was a controversy over that. No, before. I Rock, don't think I did either. It? Yeah. Next up is our buddy Ange. Um, on the cover, he said, I thought this was a decent cover, although Sensai and Sargon are, S- Sargon are way too huge. I think the Shaggy Man – remember, I, I was speculating why the Shaggy Man was holding a, a magnifying glass. And he pointed out, no, Shaggy Man's actually holding a mirror to see how Scalp Hunter's haircut's going. So Or if it is a magnifying glass, maybe he's looking for the secret sex.
0: Uh, he mentioned Sargon. He says, I also loved his death in something number 50. I guess at one point Sargon was a villain. It was his dabbling with evil that made him most susceptible to the dark magic feedback in that seance. Did you also know he had a Whatever Happened To story? It was in DCCP number 26, the first appearance of the Wolfman Perez Teen Titans. Somebody needs to collect the Whatever Happened To's in one book.
1: Well, can we just call those right now, you know... Claim them and say someday we're going to do the whatever happened to stories in DCCP. Yes. I'm I'm fascinated. Let's do
0: that now. Let's say that we're going to do it and that way nobody else tries to do it. We called it. Called it first. Ours. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of great stories in there. A lot of great stories. So that's worth – those are worth going back and and looking at.
1: Maybe we'll do a segment in Firewater or something for that. Yeah. Uh, Or maybe we'll just make who's who that much longer. Uh, (laughs) Girl Quizlet is in the Serpent because he joined the Legion at the same time as Girl. Her vague—this is something we forgot to mention. Her vague sensory powers helped keep people wondering if she was Supergirl. I completely forgot to mention that last episode, guys. Um, that, yeah, the big deal with Sensorgirl Girl was the mystery of who she was, and everyone thought she was Supergirl. So, anyway, he goes on to say that those powers could be supervision, X-ray vision, super hearing, etc. The Supergirl question is why a distraught Brainiac Five is also on her page. This is one of my favorite pages in the issue. Then he talks about Shade, the Changing Man. He says, uh, I could talk about all incarnations of The Shade of the Changing Man for a long, long time. I love this character. The Ditko issues are crazy dense. It's almost incomprehensible. It's one of those books that I reread every couple of years to see if I will understand it better. I mean, Ditko doesn't give you a second to breathe. Between the politics and organized crime on Meta, the, the old Miraculo vest, the area of madness, the various zones and the embedded mentons on Earth, it's, an over- it's overwhelming madness. The, the vest distorts how people see the shade according to their mood. Uh, It means every issue, someone is saying, he's changing. And he says he loves the Milligan book as well. See, we heard from our buddy Diablo Frank, I tried to help you guys out. Uh, I challenged him on Twitter. I said, I triple dog dare Frank to keep all of his who's who comments to less than 140 characters each this month. And uh, Frank wrote back, I could not in good conscience so deprive the Fire and Water podcast listening community to the full weight of my wisdom. Oh, Frank. Oh, Frank. Uh, he wrote 20 episodes in, and I'm never going to hear Tootie Man. And am I? I need your help on this, Rob. I've listened to the Who's Who theme a million times, and I'm actually stumped like he is. I thought at one point I figured out who Tootie Man was supposed to be, but now I don't know. I, I either lost it or never figured out. You know, you know, in the song.
0: Yeah, no, I have no idea who it is either. We just have to ask them who who they're singing to, because I I can't figure it out either.
1: All right, so we need uh, Daniel Cynical Adams, who I'm pretty sure doesn't listen to this particular show. Uh, And we need Aaron uh, yeah. So one of you guys, get on that for us. Uh, He says, I always assume – now, I kept pronouncing Diane Belmont's name wrong last episode. Uh, And he goes on to say, I always assumed Diane Belmont's name was just a spelling variation on Diane. But it could be Diane. Per YouTube, the latter option would be Spanish. Well, French is more like Diole. DC, get right on that pronunciation guide for the girlfriend of a forgettable 1940s pulp <laughs> knockoff you're currently aggressively pretending never existed. <laughs> <laughs> so, I love Frank. He cracks me up.
0: Uh, he, uh, he boils down his points and all these – he has like one, two, three, and then 3A, three 3B, three, 3, 4. But he gets the point four regarding our uh, naming conventions for the future Who's Who shows. And he says, I have two words for your podcast renaming scheme, New Coke. I'm a firm believer that there are no absolutes, and there are a variety of ways to approach any issue, except whoever came up with this stupid idea of being completely wrong to infinity. The current title is a mouthful, so I can understand wanting to shorten it once the original series is covered. But do you really want to create a confusion in your iTunes library of multiple volumes with dozens of variant titles? It will dilute your brand and encourage listeners to skip dicey editions, either intentionally. Or through emissions caused by the mesh you're going to make. Speaking not as a rabid vocal listener, but as a concerned human being with common sense, don't do this terrible <laughs> thing you contemplate. If only because I will be there to say I told you so every single time you whine about the grievous mistake you have made until the heat of the, the heat death of the known universe.
1: <laughs> he is insane. And he cracks me up what he wrote, but dude. Podcasts aren't like collecting comics. It's not like starting, you know, starting a comic book over for number one. Podcasts are disposable. You know? So, you know, anyway. I have to
0: say, I think you started to convince me with that rant.
1: Oh, my God. He started to. No, no. He started, but he stopped. He failed, okay? All right. Anyway, um, it, that's just a collector mentality, taking over. Don't start your comics over at number one. No, they're podcasts. They're disposable. You listen to it, you go, get, you don't care what the issue number is. Anyway, uh, he talks about Savick. He says, Savick is a poster boy for the value of a Who's Who entry. He only appeared in two early issues of Captain Marvel Jr. during the Golden Age and the two appearances in the Bronze Age that weren't even part of DC Shazam revival miniseries. By being in Who's Who and having it clearly spelled out that he's got his powers and an evil variation on Captain Marvel's own, he became a major Marvel family adversary. He's such an unrecognizable pagan hell beast type thing, that he, uh, and he's mostly written by Judd Winnick. <laughs> So he makes a good point, how the power of who's who, you know. Uh, he says, the primary Sandman legacy seems to be colorblindness, which <laughs> is funny.
0: He also takes uh, us to the task about, uh, I strongly suspect who's who Star Trek will be background noise listening, but through no fault of the broadcasters. Minutia minutes, engage. Now that you can li- now that you can list under a separate heading.
1: He <laughs> <laughs> uh, says, I think that entry the Shade is one of the best Carmen Infantino did. Surely due to his contribution of Rick uh, Magger. And he says it's uh, it's Ohatmu, which means Official Handbook of the Marvel Universe, but that's my jam. Uh, talks about Shining Knight, how much he likes him. Talks about Wonder Woman, because we really take a dig at Wonder Woman. And uh, he says that uh, I consider the Bronze Age to run from the 60s till the 80s and to defend this period of Wonder Woman publishing as a whole. Um, however, I am merely an advocate, not a zealot. The lead feature was more of a miss than a hit in the first half of the 80s. The hundreds backups were often the best reason to buy the book and sometimes very nearly the only reason. And uh, last thing I'm going to mention from Frank is he comes back and says, we are all confused about the series. Re-. You remember talking about Rebels last time, Rob? Yeah. Okay. I was confused because there's been two different incarnations of the Rebel series. I was thinking of the first one because you had the, the Legion 89, Legion 90, Legion 91 book. Right? And then it ended and it became Rebels. It became Rebels ninety-four, ninety-five, ninety-six. It was a spin-off from Zero Hour and it was a continuation from Legion, and it, it it dealt with some stuff I didn't really get into. Anyway, later on, years later in two thousand nine to eleven, there was another Rebels series that came out that was written by Tony Bedard. And basically it was DC's response to Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy. So uh that that's the one that people are raving about is the two thousand nine to two thousand eleven Rebel series, so, I don't know, I may have to check that out someday. Probably not, though. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, We heard from our buddy, Jeff R. He says, so as a team heavy issue of Who's Who, it's a pro- uh, Jeff always comes up with our egregious omission. So he says the egregious omissions are, first, the seven deadly sins uh, I'm sorry, the seven deadly enemies of man, aka the seven deadly sins. That's a good one. They probably should have been in there, given how much uh, Shazam's laying around. And secondly, the shadow demons who collectively scored a big enough body count during Crisis.
0: You know? That's a, fair, uh, that's, that's, a, a, that's a fair argument to make.
1: Yes, it is. Now, those are the two runner-ups. The actual winner this month is a true hero to all the children of the world who have teamed up with numerous other DC heroes on multiple occasions, including a featured issue of DC Comics Presents with Superman, none other than Santa Claus himself. Lumps of coal all around for the Who's Who editors. Additional runners up uh, page status goes to the Sand Sandman. Now I know Jeff
0: is, is is making these entries, these suggestions. The tongue planted firmly in cheek, but the, to take it seriously for a minute, the reason Santa Claus, like say DC, would want to do that, is because the whole point, of, not the whole point, but a large point of Who's Who was to reestablish copyrights for all these characters, yeah. which is why their yeah. li- the, their names are listed on the cover, not on the inside, and you cannot copyright Santa Claus. So you couldn't. I mean, I don't know if you literally could not put santa claus in the book i mean what would who's going to stop you but it would not be a copyrightable character
1: yeah yeah i would agree with that um we heard from kyle benning he had written a long diatribe that got lost so he was kind of upset that the wordpress basically ate it but he does go on to say that john Byrne apparently took a lot of flack for the superman reboot that wasn't his fault he says that dc editorial wanted uh all the stuff um, – to return Superman to the classic character, basically the Golden Age, with no superboy origin and uh, make it more in line with the ver- movie version. So he, he's saying that wasn't all John Byrne, and Byrne takes the heat for a lot of the decisions that actually came from editorial. Hmm. Interesting.
0: I don't think I knew that. Uh, he mentions – he has mentioned something here which I never thought of before. He says – have Sergeant Rock and any of the Justice Society or All Star Squadron ever teamed up or interacted outside of any possible interaction they may have had during crisis? This seems like a no brainer. Two of DC's most popular World War II Nazi smashing teams, the All Star Squadron and mm. Easy Company, teamed up in one adventure to provide some good old fashioned American ass whooping on those dirty krauts. Who wouldn't <coughs> want to read that? Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen that. I, I can't for the. Sergeant Rock never appeared in All Star Squadron, certainly. So I don't think they ever have interacted, which I can't believe never happened. That seems what – a, what a missed opportunity to have the Ulster's right. Quadrant and Sergeant Rock together.
1: It makes no sense. It's bizarre. Yeah. So I uh, heard, heard from our buddy Anthony Durso goes by The Toy Room. He says, Sam Ann's costume was changed by Mort Weisinger and Paul Norris when they took over the strip in the end of 1941. He also gained a sidekick in the same issue. Simon and Kirby took over the strip several issues later. So Simon and Kirby weren't responsible for the uh, Wesley Dodd costume revamp, but actually, happened before that by some guy named Paul Morris and Mort Weisinger. Those guys never created anything interesting, did they? <laughs> uh, then you get Sandman two. He says before Gaiman, before Neil Gaiman, Roy Thomas wrote a Who's Who. I'm sorry, not Who's Who. Uh, wrote a Wonder Woman story, specifically Wonder Woman 300, that featured this Sandman stalking Wonder Woman in her dreams. Yes, yes. For, I remember that actually. Yeah. I, and then he calls him a creep. They says Sandy the Golden Boy, and you thought the Boy Wonder was a bad nickname. <laughs> uh, um, I love. Uh, oh, Europe are up. Go ahead. Saturn Girl, all caps.
0: I hate this entry. This costume is the Saturn Girl equivalent of mom jeans. Very, uh, <laughs> very unflattering. Bring on the pink bikini and the Ferris faucet locks of the '70s. This entry aside, still my vote for hottest Legionnaire.
1: Uh, there you go. There you go. Uh, the Sea Devils. Uh, he says, uh, in, in an ideal publishing world, these guys would be in an anthology book rotating with Cave Carson, the Challengers of the Unknown, the Doom Patrol, and the Metal Men. They're, these are the weird, unique corners of the DC universe that I really miss visiting every now and then. Dude, that would be a sweet friggin' book. I, I would almost put Doom Patrol and Metal Men in a different book and make it more Cave Carson, Challengers, Challengers of the Unknown, Sea Unknown, Devils, and maybe even Secret Six or something like that. So they're like all humans. You know, those are right, all human right, guys, right. You know, not
0: powered. super,
1: yeah. Right, that would be a it's like you know, high adventure comic that would totally kick ass. That'd be fun. Uh, he makes fun of Sarah Fan. <laughs> He goes, "Some people call me Space Cowboy." He <laughs> uh, says, "Shakira, ISIS from Assignment Earth episode of Star Trek called. She wants her shtick back." <laughs> and then uh, he makes a suggestion here. He says, "Shazam, the wizard. What is this guy's obsession with acronyms? Here's a what if." Instead of DC getting the rights to the Big Red Cheese and then the Marvel family in the 70s, Marvel snags them up. Billy Batson, agent of Shazam, anyone? <laughs> I like that. Uh, he
0: mentioned Shimmer. What is Perez's fascination with perms? Uh, and then also Shining Knight. John Bolton did Marauder, the She-Wolf for Epic as well as the backup features in the X-Men re- reprint book, Classic X-Men. I forgot to mention that. Classic. Those strips in Classic X-Men, those backups were really good because they were like... Classic X-Men featured a reprint of the X-Men – the classic X-Men 70s comics in order. And then the backups were like the little stories that took place around the stories that were reprinted. Mm-hmm. Um, those were really good. I bought that comic just to get the backups. So I completely forgot about that. And Bolton did the art for a lot of them and they were really good. That that was a great little comic, Classic X-Men. It, you got a lot for your money considering it was – you know half was a reprint book.
1: Yeah, well, and, and I knew John Bolton from somewhere, and I couldn't figure it out when we looked at that Shining Entry. That's absolutely where I knew him from because I bought Classic X-Men every once. Because I hadn't read this old X-Men. That's actually how I read the original X-Men stories. Um, or not original, but you know the 70s X-Men stories was through Classic X-Men. So love, love, love that book. Uh, let's see. Then we hear from our buddy Little Russell Burbage who's on vacation in the distant planet of Adon. He says, The Sandman is one of my all-time favorite characters. I totally agree with Shag's comment. Let's just sit on that for a moment. I totally agree with Shaq's comment. All right. That he's right between the pulp and superheroes. Sandman Mystery Theater rocked. And if you, were into mysterious creeping going, if you were into mysterious creepy going on. I remember how sad I was the first time I realized that the nondescript purple yellow man was the same as the ultra cool Wesley Dodds. Thank goodness the gas mask guy came back. I actually bought a gas mask when I was in college at a military shop. I was going to wear it for Halloween, but God, it was hot. I never did create a Sandman costume, although I kept the mask for years. And then uh, in regard to Sargon, the sorcerer, he says, I kept expecting Rob to mention that Sargon was an honorary member of the JLA. Yes, he, he, appeared tw- he appeared twice in the original Starbreaker story where he earned his honorary membership and in one of the last JLA-JSA team-ups, the one with the baby black canary.
0: <laughs> the less we talk about that, the better. Uh, he mentions, am I the only one who stopped at Star Labs and thought, huh, why is it here not in between Starboy and Starman? Surely they don't actually call it. S T I A A R labs, they surely use scientific as the word to establish its alphabetical order instead of star.
1: Really? He's <laughs> got a good point. I mean, like, it should have been alphabetical by probably S period. not It shouldn't have been alphabetical by star. It should have been alphabetical by S period because it's an acronym.
0: Yeah. Uh, and you so. never can get these comic book naming conventions are very strange.
1: So, uh, heard from Earth2 Chris. He says, uh, Scalp Hunter. He co-starred with Batman in a great issue of Brave in the Bold, number 171 by Jerry Conway and Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise, Praise be his, his name. name. James Robinson had the character go unnative and become Brian Savage, sheriff of Turk County in Opal City. He's also reconned him into Balloon Buster's father. So the more you know. Uh, Seven Soldiers of Victory. The art is a bit similar to Jerry Ordway's excellent cover to All Star Squadron number twenty nine. The Seven Soldiers of Victory were called from only National titles. You know, we talked about that about JSA and how they were called from two different printing houses. And uh, I was trying to figure out if uh, Seven Soldiers of Victory were all from the same printing house. It sounds like yep, they all came from National. So, and he also pointed out that um, that, that JLU episode did include all the Seven Soldiers of Victory, which is great. Um. There, then, I don't even really want to get into this too much, <laughs> but there was a really nasty fight from there on about Raja so how to say his name. But anyway, he goes on to say, for anyone questioning Jim Aparo's abilities in the late 80s and 90s, I recommend taking a look at Batman Legends of the Dark Knight, annual number one, from 1991. Aparo pencils and inks himself in the opening and closing sequences, and it was the best work DC published by him in a good 10 years by that point. Huh.
0: I gotta check that out. I don't think I've ever seen that comic.
1: Yeah. Whole lot of talk about Mike uh Mike DiCarlo, whole lot of talk about Raja Gul, Raisha whatever. Uh, I there is one more comment I'll read about it that sort of straightens all that up. But and then uh looks like we are on to Diablo Frank. Am I right here? No. No, no, no. This is uh still I'm sorry, these are responses. Jeez, I'm getting lost in my own thing here. Um okay. Tim Wallace said, Several issues back, I cast my vote for Shadow Last being the sexiest legionnaire. Shag states in this episode that she's the sexiest in this issue, and yet her pick is not on the Tumblr? This is now a trend, taking up a lady's appearance <laughs> and then not showing us the pick. For shame, gentlemen, for shame. And then Earth2Chris uh, comes back and says, I'm still waiting in that Doreen Day scan. I am officially rechristening Earth2Chris as Perf2Chris. I'm just saying. All right, maybe that won't stick, but anyway. Uh, Zoom Yakin- Yakinori said, By the way, Roy Thomas's retcon history, uh, filling of the same man's history where Diane Belmont was killed, happened in All-Star Squadron number 18. The story explained why same man's changed costumes and why it's similar to the purple and yellow appearance of the tarantula. Then he goes on to say, We were correct about Robot Man. Uh, part of what happened to him happened in the back of a DC Comics Presents. Those, you know, whatever happened to stories... Then uh, you guys talked a little bit about Dave Gibbons and Green Lantern.
0: Yeah, Zoom, Zoom pointed out that uh, Aquaman did – well, it was drawn by Dave Gibbons one panel in an issue of Green Lantern, which I later used for a random panel of the day. So thanks for that, Zoom.
1: Yep. And then he talked about the Justice League of America uh, Monopoly board game, and he speculated that Dave, Dave Gibbons did some of the art, but Diablo Frank corrected him and said Eduardo Arboretto did. Right. So Eduardo Barreto did the art for that. And then uh, – Oddly enough, he actually gives a link for my other blog that I haven't updated in like four years. So I guess I, I, he appears to know that I'm associated with it. It's kind of neat that someone still check that out, onceuponageek.com. Thanks for that. Martin Gray. All right, so there's, there's a lot of interesting information here. He says, I read a lot of Scout Hunter. They were a great little tales, and I don't think he ever shared a book with Jonah Hex. Frank, he simply took this spot in Weird Western. Well, James Robinson extended his place in the D.C. via the stupid O'Dare and Balloon Buster and Starboy business, how I hate reincarnation, his D.C. connections go back into in another direction. Brian Savage, a.k.a. Scalp Hunter, was the son of Matt Savage, trail boss from Western comics. Mind, I think uh, Robinson referenced this also, so you, may, so you may already know. Perhaps the reason he didn't really scout people was that Scalp Hunter name was a late addition. I believe the strip was originally going to be called The Savage. Don't know why it's changed. Perhaps someone – when someone has a moment of senile, uh, sensitivity – oh, perhaps someone had a moment of sensitivity, not that Scalp Hunter is much better. Heard from our buddy Philemon. And now, Philemon has a reputation for being absolutely uh, batshit crazy. Like, everything he says is either nuts or the opposite of what we um, are, are into, which is, by the way, I, why I signed him the Omega Men in the, the blogging story earlier. But he says uh, – he goes, that's right, Shag. Uh, that's right, Shag and Rob. I am a teacher – and responsible for shaping the minds of the futures of America. Let that sink in for a second. That's downright terrifying. Uh, he talks about his, some of his favorite entries in this issue, and he mentions um, some of his favorite comics. I'm sorry. He said he collected Wolfman and Perez's Teen Titans, or as I prefer to call it, Jericho and his amazing friends. I almost threw up from laughing so hard when I read that. So that really just cracked me up really, really bad. He says, Sandman 1, it isn't just an 80s DC – or It just isn't an 80s DC comic without a large, mostly magenta piece of artwork. (laughs) All right, you're bit Go ahead.
0: Okay. Uh, Yes. Uh, Final, I mentioned, he says, I assume you are making reference to it, but I'm not sure that I owned a comic in the 80s that didn't include at least one asterisk directing me to a footnote caption explaining what star stood for. Someone in editorial really thought that acronym was genius. Yeah. And then he mentions, I recently acquired several of the Sea Devil's original adventures. I completely agree with Rob, pause on that, that the Russ Heath artwork is breathtaking. Although I will say, I find the stories very enjoyable in that simple Silver Age way. So, okay. I'll
1: have to check cool. those out. I got a few more following comments here. Uh- the main thing really to focus on here is that Filament is actually making a lot of sense in this uh, issue. So I guess during the summer when school's out, he's just – he hasn't much chance to get more sleep and he can be lucid. But since says, I, I purchased the original Secret Cidic Stories a few months ago, but I haven't read them. Thank you for not spoiling the big reveal. You're welcome. Uh, finally, the capal moment of the comic. The Forever People Seraphan – okay, never mind. I take back everything I said about him making sense. He says, I would buy a Seraphan Pariah Jericho crossover all day long. Great pitch, Rob. Uh, I said, I think one of the morals of Who's Who is that Kenner did not make nearly enough superpowers <laughs> figures. It's so true. And then he says it may be blasphemy, but the Shadow Thief artwork is superior to Kubert's um, entry of, of Sergeant Rock. So, and you know what? I think he may be right.
0: Yeah, I think it, yeah,
1: I think I might I might be on board with that. Yep. Heard from Michael Kiriskiro. He said, I will second Earth 2 Chris's comment about the Scavenger entry. It reminds me so much of Mike, Zack, era Marvel work, which is funny because I used to read a lot of Ron Friends drawing Spider Man back in the days. Always love Friends. But I never noticed a similarity between his style and Zack's until this entry. Anyway, it's a gorgeous piece, so dynamic. I want Shag's time machine so I can go hop back into the 80s and get Friends to draw an extended run of Aquaman. Just beautiful.
0: I'd go for that. Uh, Harlan Freilicher sent us a great idea. He says, I have an, I have an uh, idea for an awesome new DC title that unfortunately should have been pitched in the eighties or nineties inspired by some of the lesser lights. Okay. Total duds. We've seen it. Who? So I give you the super team title that should have been the disposables. Obviously it's just the book's title. The team would need a different name inside the comic, like the danger guard or something. But I'm talking about a team made up entirely of characters who could die without really being missed by the readers and die. They would. That would be the hook to keep bringing the readers back. At least one team member would die in every issue. No telling who. No telling who or at what point in the books and those who would be on the first page. The key would be to get a writer who could consistently come up with the creative and violent deaths, but who had either no interest and no talent for characterization. I'm sure a few names will come to your minds. After all, the last thing we want for somebody to put an angle to make these characters compelling, that would spoil our enjoyment of watching them die. <laughs> it reminds me of an old George Carlin bit Where he talked about a band That he used to go see That uh, I forget the name of But he said they would kill A member of the band For each performance oh. <laughs> And he would say The great thing about the band Is that the sound Is always changing
1: So Oh jeez <laughs> problem is After 832 issues You'd be out of who's who People to kill That's
0: true So uh, He also mentions uh, As for the roster Northwind is a no-brainer So, <laughs> so is is Ryandar Prince Rahman And every member Of the forever people Awesome. Whizlet travels to the past so we can watch it by the farm. Likewise, Flying Fox among all-stars travels forward in time. Ooh, t- travels, I don't agree with that one. Travels forward in time, just ages slowly, or whatever. We're going to need a big list of recruits who are going to keep the body down rising, so I'll throw the floor open for suggestions.
1: Most of the people appeared in this tissue.
0: <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of them. Yeah,
1: I would argue Yeah, a lot of them. I hate to call them duds, but... Uh, then we heard from uh, our buddy Aaron and if anyone wants to put together a team, go ahead and send it we 'd love to read that Let's get be fun. stalker in there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, Aaron Bias said uh, talking about Sandman uh, Wesley Dodds in his nightmares he goes the the nightmare or dream thing was added by Neil Gaiman, and he goes on and talks about some other stuff and he says a whole lot of Mike Parabeck's Sandman would have rocked because he's mentioning how when Mike Parabeck drew JSA. Sameen was in a wheelchair, so we didn't get a chance to see Mike Parabeck really drawing Sameen as, as he deserved to be drawn.
0: That guy did everybody well, Mike Parrabek. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Uh, we got an email from Negative Steve Mandel. Sigh. Considering the cheap shots I take at Aquaman and my comedy routine, I guess I can't complain about your Legion coverage. But I will. Uh, but I will anyways, because you're under Earth's because under your Earth's yellow sun, I have the power of super hypocrisy. <laughs>
1: And then he goes on to explain Legion of Superheroes, or I'm sorry, Legion of Super-Villains, because I don't get why Legion of Super-Villains is so hard to understand. The original Legion of Super-Villains were enemies of the Adult Legion, a Jim Shooter creation that took place in the future of the future. Year, uh, years after the story was published, but years before it took place in continuity, a character named Tarek the Mute formed another version of Legion of Super-Villains, which is kind of fish, finishing school for thugs. In the 80s, when the Legion Baxter series was launched, former Legion of Superheroes' uh, nemesis kid formed another re- – anyway, he goes on and on explaining all the different Legion of Supervillains, pointing out that, yes, it is absolutely you know insane, but the joke is just you know that it shouldn't be. Uh, then he says, nothing to with the Legion of Supervillains, but it deserves a mention here because you tend to get it wrong. Dawnstar is the hottest Legionnaire. <laughs> More support after that for another – for a live-action Same-Man Mystery Theater TV show. Maybe, maybe they're onto something there, you know. And, uh, then he talks again about, uh, he's another one who jumps in about the Patriot Act, which was that JLU episode with Shining Night and everybody. I heard from Keith G. Baker. Now, this is the part, this is the last time I want to bring up Rajagul, or Ray because it's really, like, people get really hostile with that argument. And Keith has listed some information that's interesting, so not so much one-sided. He says, according to Denny O'Neill, Julie Schwartz came up, came to him back in the day with the name of a new Batman villain, uh, Razagul. All he had was a name floating around in his head, and he was going to leave it up to O'Neill to flesh out the character. Both Julie and Denny pronounced it Raish, so Raish out of Denny O'Neill's mouth. O'Neill had recounted the story on the pronunciation in many of his interviews over the years. The most recent retelling of his story can be heard in an entirety on uh, Kevin Smith's Batman on Batman. Uh, And then, interestingly enough, uh, O'Neill says that his daughter confirmed the pronunciation with a linguist at UCLA. So that's Raish. Then he says, to make things even more complicated, a couple weeks before, Kevin Smith had an interview with Neil Adams. Neil, however, pronounced it Roz. So to recap, Denny O'Neill and Julie Schwartz, uh, the creators of the character, say Raish. Neil Adams, creator of the look of the character, pronounced it Raish. So I suppose it comes down to who you want to believe. So there you go. Everybody's right.
0: Uh, We got an email from David M. Gutierrez. Uh, my pals, Who's Who, another great episode. Rob, a question. Why is the Omega Men good, but the Legion superheroes not to your taste? This isn't an indictment. I'm just curious. You know, that's a good question. I think because the Omega Men are kind of not superheroes, they're really a sci-fi book with like some superhero sort of fairy dust on it. But to me, <laughs> superheroes in the future just don't make it. And uh, to be honest, I always found most of the Legion characters just such so stupid. Uh, then I just I don't know I would f- read them and I'm like bouncing boy like what like they, they just seem so lame to me so but you know what like I said I've read a handful of Legion stories from around 300 through 306 307 during that whole shrinking violet colossal boy storyline and they're written by Levitz and they're drawn by Keith Giffen and they're really good they're really good I don't know why I didn't keep up buying the book but those are are pretty good issues so you know maybe I just need to try some more or something I don't know.
1: Hmm. Well, I hope uh in your golden years as you're about to die, I hope the adult version of Legion of Supervillains shows up to try and beat on you. So
0: I'm gonna play some of my heat vision.
1: You might, you might, yeah. Long as Jimmy Olsen's dead. So Um also David went on to talk about how Wesley Dodd, Starman, I'm sorry, Wesley Dodd Sandman teamed up with um Starman. He says it was a great crossover. You guys absolutely need to read it right away. Heard from uh, my buddy Jose Rivera. He says, um, which is funny, I don't think he's going to hear this actually anytime soon, but he said, uh, a part of me really wants to dive into the Who's Who podcast more. uh, I've only really listened to the most recent one, but I also want to wait for when I have all of my Who's Who bound into hardcovers and go through them like that. Right now, they are loose single issues being prepped to be shipped to the bindery. Wow. Um, I just wanted to say, screw you, Jose, because I'm jealous. That would be so awesome to have, you know, a hardcover bound version of the Who. Oh, my gosh. would be gorgeous. I uh, heard from our buddy Tom Zoller on Twitter. He said, if you missed it, he posted uh, a link to his auction, his charity auction sketch he did for Heroes Con. It was the Shazam family auction piece. And then he tweeted specifically to me. He says, I totally put the Lieutenant Marvels in my Shazam piece. <laughs> and he did. So I, uh, I think I, I, I did something snarky back. I don't remember exactly what it was, but. I think I called him Inbred Marvel and in Tubby Marvel or something like that. Whatever, and Freakishly Tall Marvel. I don't know. Anyway, uh, we heard from Prince of Hope, which also—why um, well, I can't pronounce that handle. I don't even know. The Prince of Hope, uh, Prince of Hope, actually live tweeted an entire episode of the Who's Who podcast. So we appreciate that. Thank you so much. How did you do that? On Twitter. But, like, so as, were, he, as he was listening, as he, as he was tweeting, he to him, I Yeah, he was tweeting, yeah, yeah. Interesting. So, and, so. Uh heard from Tony D, the same man's costume is similar to Tarantula's costume when Tarantula came to the All-Star Squadron. Oh, yep. And then Janna Ra, which is Element Lad from Legion of Superheroes for your sake, Rob, came in to say, uh, but that was explained in All-Star Squadron that both costumes have been designed by Diane Belmont. And then Tony D. came back again. This is the part that's interesting and new. It says both costumes are way similar to the Black Hood, the costume of the Black Hood War in the 1940s in the uh, MLJ comics, the pre-Archies. Hmm. Who knew? I didn't know that. Heard from Ann's just the other day, he has still got a mat on for the J. Wilbur Wolfham, Wolfingham entry. He says, J. Wilbur Wolfingham, cursed be his name for having a full-page entry in Who's Who. And he included a pic from a more recent comic where he shows up. So that's kind of funny. Heard from Kevin Thomas King. He says, like Jerry Ardway, I always felt Michael Bayer-style capture the World War II era feel perfectly. Couldn't agree with you more there, my friend. Oscar uh made a funny joke about rubber duck and just said basically in his golden years how he was having trouble making ends meet. And he included a picture of a literal rubber duck for a bath. Thought that was funny. Riley Nell said, listening to the Who's Who podcast, I find myself shouting the name of the greatest JLU episode, Patriot Act, at the player. I love that episode. So... Thomas Fowler went shopping on eBay and bought a bunch of Who's Who comics, so he's following along. That's awesome. Then heard from uh, Tom Reese. I had talked about uh, Sandman Two, the Jack Kirby version, and he says, "Dude, you mentioned Dreamscape on the Who's Who podcast. I was just on an episode talking about this, and he was on a podcast called The Forgotten Film Cast dot WordPress dot com." Now, Rob, um, this doesn't happen often, but I have to say we have two. Yellow Dot Awards to give away. Uh, but before we do that, we should probably mention, if you haven't seen it, the, the Batman Superman comic. They have I I don't know if there's a variant cover or just a fun cover. They have one drawn, coming up drawn by Dan Jurgens, and it is Composite Superman. <laughs> yes, Composite Superman has reappeared on the cover, and it is totally classic era Composite Superman. He's got Superman's red trunks. In fact, Superman who's chasing him is wearing the red trunks as well. So uh, Dan was drawn pre-crisis here, so it was just pretty cool. And Dan Dan was posting this on Facebook, so we started chatting with him. We actually got to have a conversation with him. And I mentioned how composite Superman is sort of like the bane of existence of the Who's Who podcast. And he was confused. He was like, what? How can composite Superman be controversial? Um, And he says, you know, it it makes a great choice for a Batman Superman cover because who else is, you know, a 50-50 blend of the two characters? So I explained the whole thing about how uh, we just pick on composite Superman and stuff like that. And how we kind of consider him a joke, but the people, you know, stand up for him. And Dan wrote, standing in front of the firing squad again, I guess. Sigh. <laughs> that cracked me up. So, uh, I guess Dan feels like, uh, a lot of people have beat on him. So, Rob, would you like to announce the, uh, the, the, any of the winners of the D- Yellow Dot Awards? Yeah, well, we have two, yeah, we
0: have two Yellow Dot Awards winners. First is Siskoid, our pal Siskoid. Woo! For his en- for his entries on his blog, sysquid.blogspot.ca, on the uh, Quicksilver, the listing on SABIC, and then eight different posts
1: related to the Red B. Yes! Yes! <laughs> oh, man, that's what I really wanted for you, man, the Red B posts. Uh oh, made me so happy. So, and there's no judge uh, bias involved in this decision no, whatsoever, by the way. And then uh, the second one is awarded to Derek Crabb, who, who actually sent us two different things. He, he has actually started a podcast based on the Transformers Universe comic. Um, and he says he was inspired by Who's Who. The Transformers Universe comic is essentially the Who's Who comic for the Transformers comic books. Uh, I actually had one or two issues myself as a kid and read them cover to cover. Loved it. Learned a lot about all the different, you know. I don't remember if the Headmasters were out of that point or not, but, like, you learn all kinds of transfer stuff, reading those things. And it was a lot of fun. But more importantly, he he took some action figures and posed them out. Uh, an episode or two ago, we, we kind of took Richard Dragon to task. We weren't very favorable to Richard Dragon. And he actually has Richard Dragon kicking Firestorm and Aquaman's ass, basically. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's got his foot on Firestorm's throat, and he's punching Aquaman over and how come it's going, I should
0: have known better.
1: And it, uh, Richard Dragon's going, mock Richard Dragon, Kung Fu Fighter, on the Uzu <laughs> podcast, will you? And then Professor Stein's talking to, uh, to Firestorm. Again, Firestorm's on the ground, and he's got Richard Dragon's foot on his throat. And he says, Ronald, you've just smelled the slipper of the Kung Fu Fighter Derek loves. <laughs> so apparently Derek was not happy with how he handled um, Richard Dragon. Any story, excuse. But-
0: our, re- our listeners will take any excuse to get out and play with their toys.
1: Hey, I'm a sucker for action figure poses, so that's, that's, the, that's the big reason he's winning the uh, Yellow Dot Award this time. Well done, sir. Well Congratulations, done. guys. Awesome. Well, another uh, bumper episode, guys, of the Who's, Who's Who podcast is in the bag. Uh, come back next time for volume uh, 22. If you have a copy, bust it out. Start reading ahead. Read with us. The final yeah, five. The-, the final five issues. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Well – until then, folks, you can check us out on the social medias. You can find Rob, uh, well, at, at his blog, which is AquamanShrine.net. Yeah. Find... Oh, go ahead. I
0: wanted to mention this, something about the AquamanShrine.net before we go on. There are going to be some big changes coming to the Aquaman Shrine. I'm not going to get into the details of it just yet, but it's basically the Shrine is 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 going to get a – top-to-bottom change, and we are hoping to add some people to the mix. We are hoping to make the site bigger and better in preparation for Aquaman's 75th anniversary, which is in 2016, and of course that'll be the same year as his his debut on the silver screen. So uh, I wrote a post about it. It's called the Aquaman Shrine 2.0 Project. So Mm -hmm. if if you are a fan of the Shrine in particular, I mean, I'm not necessarily assuming that you're a fan of the Shrine just because you listen to either one of the shows, but if you are a fan of the Shrine and you're a fan of Aquaman and you are interested in maybe joining up and being part of the Shrine on Going Forward, please come to the to, to the blog, AquamanShrine.net, on Monday, June 30th. And the post will be up around 9 a.m. And read it and maybe you'll want to participate and you can see what we're looking for. But it's uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to making the Shrine into a much better site than it's been for a long while. So – Check the shrine out Monday, June 30th, and if you can help out, you'll find out how you can do that. So, that's just a wonderful very,
1: adventure. very exciting. So the project is launching, like the building project's launching now, or this new site launches. No, the no, 30th? no,
0: no, no. The 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 efforts to change the site begin.
1: On okay. Cool.
0: Of, we want to start adding. I want the shrine to become more of a full featured site with many different voices, not just mine anymore. So mm-hmm. we're looking to see what kind of who out there. Among the vast skilled people, might want to participate in helping the shrine get to that new goal and contributing in a bunch of different ways, not just writing, but a bunch of different ways that we're, we're going to need help. So, if anybody's interested, visit the shrine and find out what you can do on Monday, June 30th.
1: Awesome. I can't wait to read Oscar uh, Olele Day's uh, sublog dedicated to Quisp. I think it's, uh, it's going to be a real nice addition. We'll take it. <laughs> All right, folks, so you can find Rob at net. You can find him under the same 100 of Aquaman Shrine on Facebook and Twitter. And, uh, and on maybe, Google Plus. Maybe Google Plus, maybe. If it's uh, if it rains that day, he does it. Uh, you can find me at Firestormfan.com, FirestormFan.com, easy for me to say. You can also find me on social medias Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Google Plus, and Instagram, all under FirestormFan. And Rob, could you tell them uh, our email address and the Tumblr one more time? The Tumblr is Fire and Water. Podcast.tumblr.com
0: and the email address is firewaterpodcast.comcast.net.
1: Yep. Be sure to check out that Tumblr uh, so that you can see the images from this issue. And then with that, folks, uh, I guess the only thing that's left to say is who's, who's next? next? Superman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, Tootie Man and Hourman, who are all these people, man? They're all part of a DC, who's who? Ultra Boy and Mr. Gold, Lightning lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Nitric and Arisia and Woody Weeks.
0: Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him!
1: He's also part of the D.C. Who's who? Aw, man! We forgot Slipknot!
0: That's absurd! You'll never convince me that there is one single source of all evil power!
1: Solomon Grundy say there is! If you don't believe me, maybe Grundy demonstrated on you. Go on, Grundy. Tell us more of this evil power source. Solomon Grundy do better than tell you. Me show you. I think it's very important for you to spend the time in figure out
0: which rope is the best for you under different conditions somebody with a slower
1: swing they're probably going to need a little bit more uh, a little bit heavier rope because they're going to need a little bit of ump to get the rope going where somebody that has a real fast swing they might want to go to the a little bit lighter rope more bodies something with a little bit more action you know so it's going to be maybe not the rope that feels uh, the very best to you would be the right rope to suit your needs